is going to have something to say about how the head of state mm. wouldn't stand for something. Not this terrorism. Yeah, people in uh, leadership and the Israeli government calling for nuking. Like, yeah. A couple more texts. Uh, hell yes to everything y'all are saying. Free Rashida. Free Rashida. And then, uh, Yo, I'm sorry. Uh, just I am sickened. Yeah, that's terrible. I'm though. sickened. In what regard? The only Palestinian person who has ever served in our government is censured as we are paying for the genocide of her people. They got to go in that hall and hear people say why they should spend more money to kill more brown people. Are you out of your mind? Like, really, what? You're censuring her? Right. The persons whose voice is most important during this time. But if you are performative in everything you do, you have never believed that not one day in your life. And so Rashida Tlaib does not matter to you until all of a sudden you need to have a Palestinian person in your pocket. Yep. Like, that's it. And this is a thing that happens when you do not have actual pride in any of the things that have your culture. Right. Right? We hear a lot of heritage, not hate, coming from the Daughters of the Confederacy. And uh, what, what did we just hear? That the, called the Moms of Liberty Clanned Parenthood. And listen, when I tell you, that's probably why I have a migraine the size of Texas. Clanned Parenthood is one of the funniest things I've ever, ever no, heard. No, Clanned Parenthood is the one. But we hear a lot of the hate, not heritage, right? And it's got nothing to, or heritage, not hate. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the people that we hate. It's got everything to do with our heritage. What if your heritage is hate? Yeah. Yeah. What about that? What about if your heritage means another group of people's absolute obliteration? Yeah. All right. I'll, be, I'll shut up. Uh, another text. Uh, her constituents are largely African and Arab Americans. More Rashidas are needed. Hello. Period. And we got another text. Oh, I can't believe I missed the show. Ambush, please get this uploaded ASAP. Please and thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Kyle, Kyle. who does uh, one heck of a job yeah, getting he edited and up. Yeah, he does. Um, that's the show. Whoa, yeah. that happened fast. Yeah. You're listening to X-Ray FM at KXRY Portland at 107.1 and 91.1 FM. And then the Halem, Manzanita, Wheeler, and Rockaway Beach at 91.7 FM streaming online everywhere at X-Ray.FM. X-Ray, X-Ray, X-Ray. <laughs> Wait, before you do it, uh -huh. before you, uh, I just have a production meeting Okay. real fast. Should we only be doing two stories in this hour and a half show? It depends. I think it depends on the meat of the stories. Well, yes, but yeah. I mean... I'm asking the audience. No. Oh. No, they're going to win as many stories as possible. That's my gamble. Okay. That's my wager. Can y'all text us and let us know? Do you want um, 
less stories or more stories? Actually, put it on our IG because we're about to leave the studio. Oh, good point. Don't text yeah. us here. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, Ambush. I've interrupted too Oh, much. no, no. We'll do a poll. We'll do a poll on the IG and just ask. Guess what I'm going to do today? A Setting poll. up a poll. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, this is my fiance. Uh, <laughs> brought to you by Morgan Jones and DJ Ambush and our amazing podcast editor, Kyle G. Ba, 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 ba. In the future, we'll be more people to that list as our team expands that's right hit the volunteer form go to our ig this which is news with, my fiance. news with my fiance the volunteer form is right there link in the bio is the first link there if you want to get involved with the shizzo uh thank you for everyone that did text in i'm going to update the playlist here for what we played today right before we leave the studio and as always don't let the individuals distract you from the systems poverty is a policy choice People over profits, power to the people. None of us are free until we are all free. Free Palestine. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for Tom Hartman. Bye. Tu balu si wajib, atu lo zayi.
Just, you know, it's sort of like that, right? But, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the most amazing things, when, when Vivek Ramaswamy, and these are, these are things that I'm not seeing reported in the media. Vivek Ramaswamy uh, said that uh, Ukraine is being run by a Nazi named Zelensky. Zelensky's Jewish. He had family die in the Holocaust, and he's calling him a Nazi? His campaign later clarified, well, he, he, he uh, didn't quite mean that or something like I, He said it. Come on. You know, wearing cargo pants. Name Zelensky. And then, you know, they get into this conversation about Ukraine, and uh, uh, Ron DeSantis says, American soldiers will never be on the ground in Europe if I'm president. Really? In other words, we're not we're not going to fulfill Article Five NATO requirements if if uh, you know Russia takes Ukraine and then moves into Poland. I mean, it sure sounded like that's what he said. Again, I saw nothing about this in the media today. It's like, why does the press obsess on anything a republic or anything a Democrat says and ignores what Republicans say? I, it just it's mind-boggling. I mean, everybody, all the media today is about. You know, Vivek Ramaswamy being called a scum by Nikki Haley. Well, yeah, okay. But that's like, what does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with public policy? You know, the fact that uh, virtually all of these Republicans were saying, yes, we need to ban abortions nationwide. Nikki Haley was the only one who was saying, you know, good luck with that. It ain't going to happen. You're never going to get two-thirds of the Senate or, you know, 60 votes in the Senate to make it happen. But, you know, they're, they're, they're banging their heads against the wall to do it anyway. It's like, I, I, I mean, this, this is where it's just so weird. Donald Trump gave, a, for example, you know, we all, and, and this, I, I realize this is a Jerry Ford example, but uh, Mark Sumner mentions this over at Daily Coast today, and I think he's just spot on. Um, those of you old enough to remember will recall that during the, one of the debates when Jerry Ford was running for, for uh, president or for uh, re-election against Jimmy Carter. In one of the debates, Jerry Ford said, uh, Eastern Europe is not a threat uh, to the United States. It's not, you know, it's not. And, and at the time, Eastern Europe was controlled by, by the Soviet Union. You know, uh, Hungary, Poland, you know, all these kinds, they were all part of the Soviet bloc, right? The Soviet Union did not disintegrate until the 1990s. And Ford was held to account for that for years. I mean, you know, that he made that, that verbal blunder. And right after the debate, he was like, oh, I didn't mean it that way. I meant, I meant Western Europe, not Eastern Europe. And still they, you know, they, 
Similarly, Joe Biden, search on the internet for Joe Biden and GAFFE, G-A-F-F-E, you know, stupid comment. And here's, uh, uh, again, Mark Sumner pointing this out. Here's CNN devoting 500 words to Biden incorrectly naming an Irish rugby team. Another article about the same thing from USA Today, another from The Guardian. Um, you know, uh, all kind, anything Joe Biden says or uh, anytime he does anything, it, it's just... Uh, so last night, Donald Trump held a rally right down the road, you know, same county, right down the street from the uh, Republican debate. And in that rally, Trump said, quote, Victor Orban, Hungary, very powerful. He fronts on both Russia and Ukraine. He knows them both very well. He told me a lot of things. Great guy. Well, Victor Orban, well, first of all, last week, Trump said Victor Orban was the president of Turkey. And that didn't get reported in the media. So last night, at least he got the country right. But then he says, you know, Hungary shares a border with Russia. I'm sorry, what's between Hungary and Russia is the entire country of Ukraine. So, you know, Trump doesn't, I, I mean, this is just a, a fundamental error. And then he goes on, he's talking about Kim Jong-un, the, the dictator of North Korea, a country with 21 million people in it. And he says, Kim Jong-un leads 1.4 billion people, and there's no doubt about who the boss is, and they want me to say he's not an intelligent man. What? He doesn't run a country of 1.4 billion people. And nobody cares what you say about him. And why are we praising a bloodthirsty dictator? Excuse me, it's 26 million people in, in uh, North Korea. I mean, this is just... And then the New York Times, this is, this is, here's the kicker to the whole thing. The New York Times covered Trump's rally. Did they point out his gaffes the way that they do whenever Biden says something wrong? Not one word. Instead, they said, they, they called it a kind of Make America Great Again festival. They talked about the food trucks. They talked about the t-shirts. They explained how Donald Trump compared Joe Biden to Fidel Castro. But did they point out that, you know, Trump doesn't know that Hungary doesn't share a border with Russia? Nope. Did they point out that Trump doesn't know that Kim Jong-un doesn't have a country with 1.3 billion people in it? Or the, alternatively, that President Xi doesn't run North Korea? I mean, it's one or the other, right? In Trump's, I, in, not, not a word. Not a word. In the New York Times. It's mind-boggling. I mean, I just, it, it's just mind-boggling. You know, the rest of the debate last night, I, 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 I kept thinking during this debate that our European allies in particular uh, and Mexico had to be watching these clowns and saying to themselves, oh, my God, the world is doomed. And then you got the polling. Henry Ormond, who uh, uh, studied polling in college, has, knows something about this, wrote about this over at Daily Kos, a piece called Why Polling is Dead, Dead, Dead. And, uh, you know, he, he writes, the bedrock of, vital, of valid polling is to collect a true random sample of the population you want to study. Keep in mind, the polls were telling us that Democrats are going to get wiped out on Tuesday. And instead, you know, look at what happened. And he says, you know, the problem is that people don't answer their phones anymore. People don't even answer their doors anymore. Half the time, people aren't home anymore because everybody in the family is working. 
20, 30, 40 years ago before Reaganomics gutted the American middle class, you could rely on there being somebody home to answer the door. You could rely on somebody answering their phone, generally speaking, because phones didn't have caller ID. But he says, you know, it's impossible to get a response rate high enough to have a meaningful, meaningful sample. So what do, the, what do the polling companies do? They basically fill in the blanks with guesses. They have fancy words for it, right? They, they, they call it waiting. Oh, yes, we're going to wait the poll. What does that mean? It means we didn't get enough people of a certain type, so we're going to fill in what we think they would have said if we had gotten them. Don't believe the polls. Don't believe the polls. And, and finally, well, I'll, I'll tell you about this on the other side of the break, but this, this is uh, uh, just totally weird. Donald Trump, we learned from Ivanka's testimony, was scamming his own kids. I'll be right back with that on the other side of this break. Stay tuned. 16 minutes past the hour. And then I'll pick up your calls. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the True People's Media. Be right back with you. Stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, Gloria in Forest Park, Illinois. Hey, Gloria, what's on your mind today? Hello. Thanks for taking my call. A few things with these conspiracies. I noticed Ramaswamy brought them out, the deep state. He mentioned that. I don't know if you caught that one. And that Joe Biden wasn't really uh, in control of the White House. Was This is what uh, they said last night in the debate, you're saying? Yeah, see... Uh, mentioned the word in his debate about the deep state. Oh, geez. And also, <laughs> he mentioned that, oh, and Joe Biden, he isn't really the person in charge, you know, running things in the White House. Right. I'm thinking, why didn't they call him out on this? Yeah. He said it very quickly. Who said that? And, I'm sorry, I missed uh, a word. Uh, Swami. Oh, yeah. Oh, he, he was... Go back and listen. Yeah, he was pumping BS as fast as he could. I mean, it was just, it was... You know, he's just flinging it out the off the stage. It was incredible. And what really got me, he uh, uh, he wanted to know why they couldn't have someone like T Tucker Carlson. I can't remember the other two people. Yeah, I'm thinking, oh my God, what is this? Yeah, he 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 started the debate by attacking one of the moderators, a black woman, for that matter. I mean, you know, of course, in in in, in fact, uh, you know, f first he goes after her, then he, then he goes after. He, oh, then he goes after Nikki Haley. I mean, he was all about attacking women all night long, it seems. Um, yes. But, oh, man, it was, yeah, he, he, uh, the idea of this guy, who's, who's nearly a billionaire in, in, from what looks to me like a pump-and-dump scheme in the stock market, you know, um, it, it's just, just, uh, it's very troubling, Gloria. Gloria, thank you. Thanks for pointing that out. I just want to mention that. Have a good evening. Yeah, thank day, you. Day, morning. Thank you, Gloria. Okay, bye. You too. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Oh, plenty. You know, I want to I want to uh, talk about something I heard on Ralph Nader's uh, program on Monday, which I don't listen to all the time, but I do occasionally. 
And he actually gave kudos to Marjorie Taylor Greene for being against funding either Israel or the Ukraine. Yeah. Militarily. I know. Ralph Ralph has uh I don't know what to say. <laughs> I just don't yeah. know what to say. It's 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 fashionable right now among people who aspire to be the the uh, uh, you know avatars of the left uh, to to be opposed to supporting democracies. I, I I just I don't understand it. I don't I don't either. And uh, you know this Trump and his gaps. I will give MSNBC credit of all the corporate media. They seem to do the best job of showing clips of Trump saying stupid stuff. CNN not so much. Yeah. Fox probably never, although I guess there's a woman now on Fox uh, on that show with the five people. Yeah, they have. Uh, I can't think of her name. Yeah, and she's sort of taken over uh, uh, the, the what was his name, Combs, his place from 20 years ago. Uh, was yeah. it Adam Combs? No, yeah. it was. It, it was. Uh, and <laughs> and she Combs. just, you know. Yeah, she just goes off on Trump on that show. Yeah. And, you know, the other guys are sitting there, you know, kind of looking at her like, uh, you know, what what part of uh, Mars did you come from? But yeah. that's their problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, don't you realize who's writing your paycheck? But, you know, yeah, she's the token yeah. liberal, but she's actually really good. I, I don't remember her name yes. either, but she's she, she periodically kicks, kicks their asses. Dennis, thank you. Thank you for the call. It's 20 minutes past the hour. We'll be back with uh, more of the news of the day. And also, Democrats can win on confronting crime. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. Change starts with you. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. It's the Capitol switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. So MAGA Mike and the Republicans want a religious test for people running for public office. They want to know that you are sufficiently Christian to be worthy of being elected. Right. MAGA Mike is one of these uh, seven mountain evangelicals. There are seven domains where these dominionists believe that we need to have religion completely take them over. Education, religion, family, business, government, military, arts and entertainment, and the media. Seriously. This is not what Jesus was preaching when he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto, unto God what is God's. This is the opposite, in fact, of what Jesus was teaching. It's the opposite of Matthew 25, where Jesus said the only way to get to heaven is by feeding the hungry, healing the sick, helping the poor. It's, this is counter-Christian, anti-Christian, in fact. In fact, I think you could say it is the Antichrist's work. There's a piece about it over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Lisa Rubin uh, yesterday on MSNBC was uh, uh, speaking of um, Ivanka Trump's testimony. She points out that uh, Don Jr. and Eric both basically said, "I don't know. I didn't have anything to do with it. I don't remember. I'm you know I'm just I'm just the the kid who signs the documents. I you know don't don't ask me about any technical stuff." But Ivanka came right out and said 
that when she was helping organize the bank loan, the, the billion dollar, two billion dollar bank loan with Deutsche Bank that literally saved the Trump empire from, from disaster, that her father had to sign a document with Deutsche Bank that said that he had more than two and a half billion dollars, uh, that he was liquid to that extent or that he had access to that kind of money, and he didn't. He had to borrow it from his children. Apparently, a lot of his assets are in, in trust for each one of his three kids. And he had to borrow from all three of them in order to meet this, this goal, which is a violation of the contract he signed. It's a crime. Lisa Rubin says he was literally borrowing money from his kids' piggy banks to satisfy Deutsche Bank that he had enough money to borrow from them. My jaw almost dropped. I almost dropped my phone to the floor. She says that's a really big deal. Fascinating stuff. My op-ed today over at HartmanReport.com is titled, Democrats Can Win by Confronting Crime. And what I'm pointing out is that this crime in America right now is a very real problem. It's not, it's not so much murder. I mean, murder rates are up from 2020, but they're down from 20 years ago. Um, you know, major crime is actually down over the past few decades. In fact, crime of basically all kinds has been down since the 1990s. The, the, the two main theories are, number one, it has to do with getting lead out of gasoline, and the second one is it has to do with legalizing abortion back in 73. But, you know, nobody knows for sure why. But the kind of crime that is up that is actually causing a political problem, in my opinion, for Democrats all across the country, because most cities are democratically run, run by Democrats, and most cities... Uh, this is happening in virtually every city in America, are these quality of life crimes. Car thefts, snatch and grabs, um, uh, carjackings, um, uh, break-ins, uh, you know, uh, homelessness, um, uh, mentally ill people, drug addicts. I mean, I've, uh, we've had, we've found syringes in our front yard because there's a park down the street where homeless drug addicts were living. I mean, this was worse during the pandemic, but, uh, you know, it's still going on. Uh, we've had people shot in our, you know, near us, not in our neighborhood, but you know, in, in the, our part of Portland. We and and the police just never respond. I mean, it's just the, the the cops in Portland are stretched so thin they don't they don't even enforce the traffic laws. It's been years since I've seen a, anybody caught, you know, pulled over by a cop, and constantly I'm seeing cars with no license plates. They're stolen cars. We call them homeless Ubers. People steal a car, drive it to where they want to go, and just leave it there. And then, you know, walk off with the plates because they can sell them. It's, uh, and they're portable. I'm arguing that Democrats need to pick up this mantle of being tough on crime. And the proof of this was Tuesday's election in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, Sherelle Parker became the first woman ever elected mayor of Philadelphia. I'm sorry, I say Pittsburgh, I meant Philadelphia. The first mayor ever elected in Philadelphia. First woman ever elected mayor in Philadelphia. And what was her platform? Hire 300 more police officers, fix broken street lights, remove graffiti, fix up dilapidated buildings, and empower the new cops that she's going to put on the beat, on the street, to stop pedestrians they believe may be committing a crime. On her website, she says, at the time, many in the city, including some of those running for mayor now, were convinced that a plan that calls for more police would be political suicide. But she did not take cues from the loudest voices calling to defund the police instead of talking to and listening to people in communities and across the city and taking action. People say more cops. More cops doesn't have to mean more racist cops. 
Right? It's entirely possible for a city to hire people who actually want to protect and serve, particularly now that, you know, police officers are, you know, in most cities, cops are making somewhere between sixty-five dollars and $100,000 a year. These are good jobs. So anyway, I'm saying, you know, Democrats need to get with the plan. They need to have uh, some comprehensive ways to deal with crime in America. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. And not just crime, also homelessness and mental illness, and, you know, and drug addiction, which are, you know, feeding this crime spike. Welcome to the Tom Hartman Book Club. Today we're reading from Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. And uh, I've, you know, known about this book, read little pieces of it for decades. I mean, it's a, it's the classic work on totalitarianism. It's long and there's a lot of words in it. But uh, for this moment, uh, Elliot Lutzig, uh, Lustig uh, was tweeting... Uh, recently about uh, Donald Trump. This is back when Donald Trump was talking about three to five million illegal immigrants uh, voting, right? And he said, Hannah Arendt, in her book, The Origin of Totalitarianism, provides a helpful guide for interpreting the language of fascists. She noted how decent liberals of 1930s Germany would fact-check the Nazis' bizarre claims about things like Jews as if they were meant to be factual. What they failed to understand, Arendt suggests, is that the Nazi Jew-hating was not a statement of fact, but a declaration of intent. So when someone would blame the Jews for Germany's defeat in World War I, naive people would counter by saying, there's no evidence of that. What the Nazis were doing was not describing what was true, but what would have to be true in order to justify what they planned to do next. So did 3 million illegals cast vote in the election? Clearly not. But fact-checking is just a way of playing along with their game. What Trump is saying is not that 3 million illegals voted. What he's saying is, I'm going to steal the voting rights of millions of Americans. So that that's kind of a contemporary frame for this book. So let's read from the book itself. Here, This is uh, from page uh, 348. And she's talking about uh, totalitarian movements and how they use propaganda how they how they communicate with the public and the difference between terror and propaganda the the kind of terror that they can inculcate by by just kind of randomly arresting people pretty much everybody's committed some kind of crime at some point right arresting people and uh, on the one hand that's the terror or convincing the people says totalitarian movements use socialism and racism by emptying them of their utilitarian content the interests of a class or a nation. The form of infallible protection in which these concepts were presented has become more important than their content. The chief qualification of a mass leader has become unending infallibility. He can never admit an error. The assumption of infallibility, moreover, is based not so much on superior intelligence as on the correct interpretation of the essentially reliable forces in history and nature, forces which neither defeat nor ruin and prove wrong because they're bound to assert themselves in the long run. Mass leaders in power have one concern, which overrides all utilitarian consideration, to make their predictions come true. The Nazis did not hesitate to use, at the end of the war, the concentrated force of their, of their still-intact organization to bring about as complete a destruction of Germany as possible in order to make true their prediction that the German people would be ruined in case of defeat. 
The propaganda effect of infallibility, the striking success of posing as a mere interpreting agent of predictable forces, has encouraged in totalitarian dictators the habit of announcing their political intentions in the form of prophecy. The most famous example is Hitler's announcement to the German Reichstag in January 1939, quote, I want today once again to make a prophecy in case the Jewish financiers succeed one more in hurling the people into a world war, the result will be the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe, end of quote. Translated into non-totalitarian language, this means, I intend to make war and I intend to kill the Jews of Europe. Similarly, Stalin, in the great speech before the Central Committee of the Communist Party in 1930, in which he, pre he prepared the physical liquidation of intra-party right and left deviationists, described them as representatives of dying classes. This definition not only gave the argument its specific sharpness, but also announced in totalitarian style the physical destruction of those whose dying out had just been prophesied. In both instances, the same object objective is accomplished. The liquidation is fitted into a historical process in which man not only suffers, or does or suffers what, according to some immutable law, is bound to happen anyway. As soon as the execution of the victims has been carried out, the prophecy becomes a retrospective alibi. Nothing happened but what has already been predicted. It does not matter whether the laws of history spell the doom of the classes and the representatives or whether the laws of nature exterminate all those elements, democracies, Jews, Eastern subhumans, the Untermenschen, or the incurably sick. They are not fit to live anyway. Incidentally, Hitler, too, spoke of dying classes that ought to be, quote, eliminated without much ado, end quote. This method, like other totalitarian propaganda methods, is foolproof only after the movements have seized power. Then all debate about the truth or falsity of a totalitarian dictator's prediction is as weird as arguing with a potential murderer about whether his future victim is dead or alive, since by killing the person in question, the murderer can provide prompt proof of the correctness of his statement. The only valid argument under such conditions is promptly to rescue the person whose death has been predicted. Before mass leaders seize the power to fit reality to their lies, their propaganda is marked by its extreme contempt for facts as such, for in their opinion, fact depends entirely on the power of the man who can fabricate it. The assertion that the Moscow subway is the only one in the world is a lie only so long as the Bolsheviks have not the power to destroy all the others. In other words, the, word, the method of infallible prediction more than any other totalitarian propaganda device works. In the book, Hannah Arendt, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Did you know that every weekday we send out an email before the show giving you all the topics coming up so you can be fully informed and ready to interact with our program? Or that after the show we send out Sue's Stack, a list of every topic I've discussed along with clickable hot links to every source of information I've shared with you on the air? It's all completely free and available over at tom.tv, T-H-O-M TV. Check it out. Welcome back. So what's on your mind? Did you watch the debate last night? Uh, did you catch any of the clips this morning? Uh, did you watch Donald Trump? <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious. No, actually, I, maybe some of you did watch Donald Trump's uh, rally last night in, uh, in Miami. Uh, it's, it's pretty grim stuff, I, I realize. But, you know, some people are just masochists. They, they like to punish themselves. Uh, anyhow, 
pick up your calls here. What's on your mind? Tyrone in Chicago. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing? Good. Hey, Tom, I, I saw some of the debate. I saw some of the debate. But um, Mickey Haley, you know, she talked about Joe Biden's son. Then when somebody talked about her daughter, she got very upset. So yeah. I just want to say, how can she get upset at, at, at anything when she down Joe Biden's son and, you know, really down the man? That's a good point. That's a good point. Although I, I think her daughter was uh, is younger. Uh, I don't. I think she's still a minor, uh, and that was that. That's probably where she would get the sympathy for that sentiment. You know, just like people don't talk about Baron Trump uh, because he's he's not yet 18. Although he turns 18 this year, um, it, it'll be interesting to see. You know what what comes out once that happens. But uh, you know, I get it. Uh, you know, I, it, it's also it's it's I, I, James Comer now. Uh, who is trying to, you know, who runs the uh, House Oversight Committee and is trying to subpoena uh, Hunter Biden. It, and and uh, he's also su trying to supi su subpoena James Biden, Joe mm. Biden's uh, brother, because uh, Joe loaned him $200,000, which James paid back. And when, uh, when Comer got a copy of the check, he said, ah, the smoking gun. Turns out James Comer loaned his own brother $200,000. So... Tyrone, it's weird. It's just weird. Tyrone, thanks a lot for the call. Gary in Monroe, Georgia. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Greed has no heart. Indeed. Greed does have no heart. I share your, and I'm just, I think I know you well enough I can say this. I share your deep frustration, I feel the same way, and disappointment in the culture that's in place currently in America. I say currently. I still have hope, but you know, reality is a tough card. What what culture are you speaking of, Gary? The culture of this. Great. That was. A, I'm glad that was a great follow up. You just said. Okay, I'm going to cut to the chase. This is the culture I'm talking about. It's a Barnum and Bailey world, just as phony as it can be. Oh yeah. Well, Donald Trump certainly brought us that. Remember when he was asked what his favorite book was, and he said after the Bible, it was. The Art of Making Money by P.T. Barnum? I think I do. Yeah. I actually went out and bought the book because I was curious, you know, if Trump is Did endorsing you? it. I bought it and I read it. It's a short book. It's like, you know, 60 pages. Mm -hmm. And and it's basically mm -hmm. uh, Norman Vincent Peale kind of stuff, you know, positive thinking. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a bad book, actually. Well, do but, you know where... That's interesting. But uh, Barnum's you know thing, The Art thing? of Money Making, has to do with being... Being larger than life, you know, constantly getting your name in the headlines. Don't worry what they have to say about you. Just make sure they spell your name right. All that kind of stuff. You know where that came from? It's a Barnum and Bailey world, just as funny as it can be. It came from a song. Oh, really? Yeah, it came from a song. And Natalie Cole saying it best. Uh, I'm trying to think. Of, yeah, it's out of a song. Hmm. Exactly. It's a Barnum and Bailey world, just as funny as as it can be. And then I want to close with this. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the reality is this. We get the government we deserve. I'm not sure that's always true. I, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I don't think most Americans voted to, to legalize political bribery. That was five Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't think most Americans... But what's going to change this, Tom? What's going to change? People waking what? up to how we've been ripped off. I don't think most Americans wanted giant monopolies and wanted our, our downtowns and our, and our uh, 
you know, uh, shopping malls gutted so, and, uh, you know, our businesses consolidated. I don't think most Americans wanted our jobs shipped overseas. These were all decisions that were made in large part because the Supreme Court legalized bribery and because the Republican Party decided well, no. throwing in with billionaires was more important than throwing in with the average person. And I think that people are figuring it out, Gary. I really do. That's that's why you're seeing these Democratic so victories. So let me ask you this, Tom. I agree with what you said, in, in uh, basically. But the question is, do you agree with me that we haven't bottomed out? Well, I, I, I can imagine things getting much, much worse before they get better. I'm hopeful that that's not what happens, but, uh, you know, I'm not, so, uh, I'm not naive. So, do we need, do, in your opinion, do we need fresh, new, younger leadership as a Democratic nominee? No, I, you know, you're talking about replacing Joe Biden. It's too late to do that. Joe Biden is the nominee of the Democratic Party, and he's done a great job. And, and you know, I get it. Everybody's hysterical about his age, and to a large extent, that's code for, hey, have you noticed that there's a black woman who is his vice president? Um, Nikki Haley comes yeah, right I'm out not. and says it. Um, hey, but but I, I'm not buying not. that stuff, and I'm not buying into it. Joe Biden has done one hell of a great job. He is, he is alert. He is smart. He's on top of things. He's out there, you know, he's exercising, you know, he's, he's, he's working out, he's in great shape, he rides his bicycle. Donald Trump is obese and about the same age as Joe Biden and losing it. He, he gave a rally last night in which he said that, you know, North Korea had a billion people and, and that Hungary shares a border with Russia. I mean, he's just, he's losing it. Uh, the media won't talk about it. Uh, you know, the media wants to obsess on Joe Biden's age, but and, and rather than his accomplishments, which I think is a crime. Um, you know, the New York Times is basically saying, oh, are we looking at uh, George H.W. Biden? Um, you know, I, it's just, I, I think this is so wrong, but, but here we are. Gary, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with Biden. In fact, I'm enthusiastic about Biden, and I was not enthusiastic so about him the, during the primaries, as you'll recall. So what's right, and I agree with what you said, I really do. Don't let the question fool you when, when I ask. So what's going what's gonna to wake up uh, the, uh, the voting public? Well, Let's typically, typically what, what causes uh, significant political change is shock. And the shock of, of, the, uh, of the Dobbs decision has produced a major uh, political change across America that we saw the results of Tuesday of this week. Uh, I think we're going to see, I think that's going to echo on through 2024, although the, the Republicans okay. are starting to go radio silent about abortion. Um, you know, so, yeah, Let's we'll see how it plays out. Thank Gary, you. Yeah, thanks for the call. Jackie in Port Orchard, Washington. Hey, Jackie, what's on your mind today? Yeah. Hey, uh, real quick. The White House comment line is still not working. So. Oh, really? I, I came okay. in on the. Yeah. I came in on the tail end of a response you gave to an earlier caller. You mentioned people who are avatars of the left that are not supporting democracies. Yes. And I take it you were, you were t speaking of like Israel. We're not. Uh, I was speaking. I was thinking of Ukraine, but certainly Israel's a democracy as well. So, so let me ask you this: So, some Republicans. This is just a hypothetical, but you know, if they were in power, if they were able to succeed, they 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 believe we should invade Mexico. I'm not even sure why. It's a really stupid idea. But if we made a successful attempt at doing so, should we expect our allies to support us because we are a so-called democratic country? Well, I, to the best of my knowledge, Ukraine did not invade Russia and uh, Israel did not invade Gaza until they were attacked. So I, I think the hypothetical is meaningless, Jackie. 
Oh, okay. You're, you're, you're mixing, you've got the, the, the arrow of causality backwards. Uh, uh, you if know, Mexico I invaded that. us, and then, we, and then we attacked Mexico in an attempt to defend ourselves, then yes, I would fully expect other democracies to support us. So the, you know, the, the few days that, that Hamas was successful at, at, at killing 1,500, you know, or 1,000, however many, mostly military people, no, it was is, mostly uh, civilians, actually. Recent, all right, civilians. Say they were all civilians. So um, that's that's reason for the U.S. to completely support Israel's completely wiping out the population of Palestine. Well, again, you're exaggerating. The, nobody's completely, completely wiping out anything, and and nobody's completely supporting. You, okay, anything. you're not paying attention then. You're you're not watching what the rest of us are watching. Okay, you're not Jackie. Thank you very much. Art in Baker, uh, West Virginia. Hey, Art, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I think as soon as uh, as um, uh, uh, what's his name? Baron Trump hits 18. I think we need to get a hold of his laptop. Uh, just kidding. Just <laughs> kidding. Um, no, what I'm calling, it's kind of a little tangential, um, uh, but but you just made a statement that, that is, is consistent with the reason I called. Um, I, I'd like to refer back to the uh, incident that occurred with Emmett Till, where his mother required an open uh, casket so that people could see right. what horror, like, like that violence was and unfortunately i think we're at the point now where the only way we're going to change some of these gun laws in the united states is we're actually going to have to publish pictures of people blown apart by high-powered rifles i've been saying this for Again, three years i agree i agree i think that's what we need to do and you just made that comment about things will change when people experience yeah. shock yeah. or to, to, to Jackie's really comment just a moment ago for example with you know, we're, yeah, we're having exactly. an Emmett Till moment with regard to Gaza Americans are watching the destruction of Gaza the death of all these uh, fully innocent civilian uh, you cannot say that a, you know a 10 year old kid who gets blown up is is you know is, is a criminal um, and and yeah. and uh, you know the, and the world is a pro and the United States for that matter Joe Biden is are appropriately saying stop you know, pause this thing. You know, it's okay if you want to go after Hamas, but stop. You know, you've killed ten thousand civilians. Isn't that enough? And and yeah, agree. so, anyway. Tom, I, I agree. But the mentality of Americans is such as that's going on over there. No, but we're seeing. You know it. what I mean? Uh, you know, apropos of your comment about Emmett Till, we're seeing it on television right now, and that's swinging public <laughs> opinion really rapidly. All right, I got to run, but thank you for the call. It's forty-five minutes past the hour. You know, both. I mean, there's a real PR war going on around this as well, and let's not ignore that. Uh, we'll be right back. Forty-five minutes past the hour. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Helping you win the water cooler wars. I'll be right back with your calls. And welcome back. David in Los Angeles. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Uh, thank you, uh, Tom. I'm calling to make two observations. One was they omitted last night in the debate to discuss the issue of guns, and and they omitted the issue of climate change. There wasn't a oh, word on point, either of that David. subject. 
Good point. Uh, the, the other thing is that recently I've heard you and some of the other callers talking about where you can get information on the uh, voting uh, uh, right, uh, the voting uh, record of politicians. And I, I want to recommend you and them to an organization, Vote Smart, one word, votesmart.org, yeah. which is out of Des Moines, Iowa. They used to be in Montana, but they, they have the complete voting record of uh, almost all federal and, and state as well. For example, New York Times says, for reliable meat and potatoes, political information research experts nearly all recommend Vote Smart. And then here, U.S. News, Vote Smart makes the founders weep with joy. Um, so I, I New Los Angeles Times click on political savvy check out the project vote smart website yeah so I'm, I, I'm I looking just at give that information right to you and your uh, uh, listeners thank you thank you very much for that David I'm, I'm familiar with the site it's been a while since I've been there I just checked it out again and you're absolutely right thank you uh, for that I appreciate it Patsy in Shelbyville Texas hey Patsy what's on your mind today yes I was uh looking at the debate last night and I wasn't actually going to listen to it because it was making me upset but I did stick it out and one thing right at the end the whole thing had me bubbling but Ramswamy I think that's how you pronounce his name on yeah. the end when in their little one minute uh, uh, statement that they had said that the, the um that Biden should step aside because he is not the president. I mean, after all of this time that he would still get up there and say that, and I understand that they have been saying this the whole time. Yeah. But And I cannot remember the whole phrase because I was doing but that to me was the dumbest thing he could have ever Oh, it was a shout-out to QAnon and to the Trump base. Because they, you know, I mean, they, they actually believe that Donald Trump is, is still president. That was just so dumb. Yeah. And also, Trump, <laughs> I go keep going back to this because he just said this a few days ago. We won the whole 50 states. And I keep going back to this. How could we as Democrats scam a whole country? Right. That is just totally impossible. So yeah. it's just so much he was saying. And then on last night, I saw a part of his rallied, but I never saw him. This was leading up to it. His son and Roseanne Barr, bunch of buffoons if I ever seen them. Yeah, yeah. You know what's amazing, Patsy, is if a Democrat, mm -hmm. if Joe Biden had gotten up there, or any, you know, high-profile Democrat, yes. and said, you know, said something as absurd as what Ramaswamy said last night, or as Trump yes. regularly says, they would be pilloried. I mean, you, you, it would be the end of their political career. But these Republicans, they, they just get away with this stuff. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Patsy, it thank you for the amazing. call. Thank you very much. Thank you, honey. Good Bye -bye. talking to you. It's 49 minutes past the hour. I'll be back in 60 seconds with more of the, uh, more of your calls. So stay tuned.
help support progressive radio. If you're listening to us on a commercial station, call their advertisers and let them know you're listening. If you're listening to us on Pacifica, one of our many nonprofit stations, please support them when they do their fundraising drives. Thanks for supporting Progressive Talk Radio and tag your it. So a lot of people are wondering, why is it in America that we can't have nice things? Why don't we have, you know, the same things every other democracy has. Every other democracy in the world has a national health care system of some form, and everybody is covered. We don't. We've got 27 million un uninsured people and over 100 million underinsured people. Why is that? Why is it that every other country in the world offers college education very inexpensively, if not for free? And for here, you go to debt. Why is it that we've got our public schools crumbling and other, other countries are doing well? Why is it that we've got Medicare being taken apart by this Medicare Advantage scam and nobody will do anything about it? Well, it turns out the reason why has, it boils down to one thing, one Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, legalizing the bribery of our politicians. There's a whole rant about this over at, at uh, HartmanReport.com. Uh, I think you're, you're going to find it very, very useful. Check it out. Calls here, James in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hey, James, what's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Uh, you made a comment earlier in regards to murder rates being down in the country, uh, crime being down. Over the last 20 years, in North yeah. Carolina, and it, well, that's not true. I don't know where you get your information from, but in North Carolina, in the Piedmont area I live in, in the last three years, the murder rate's gone up 50%. Shootings are out of control. Just check it. You can see it. And oh, I agree. It's so bad now. I, I made that point, it's James. It's so bad the local media doesn't even talk about it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. In the last three years, we have seen, and I think you know, partly it's the emotional shock of a year-long lockdown and 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 million people dying at the hands of you know a, of, of a liar, um, and partly it's the financial shock of of you know six seven eight million people losing their jobs. Um, we're seeing murder rates, we're seeing major crime rates, and we're seeing minor crime rates over the last three years are all up substantially over where they were in 2019, or for that matter, where they were in 20, 2010. I well, mean, you know, everything's up. Also, but if you compare yeah, it to 1990, also, James, what you will discover is that crime rates are actually down from from the 80s and 90s. That was my point. Well, I also and included in that is the uh, defund the police department. That has killed our police department locally. Our sheriff's department are down 200 uh, people. Yeah, nobody has police defunded your police department, James. The reason why that yes. happened is because cops died at a higher rate from COVID than pretty much any other profession. They did not get a day off. No, that's, and that's on top true. of that, that's you had a whole true. bunch of older cops who were close enough to retirement that they could take early retirement. And when COVID hit, they, they, they retired. We saw this here in, in Portland. We, we lost all kinds of cops, both to COVID and to reti early retirement. And the problem is it takes a year or two years to train a cop, you know, you hire them to get them back on the force. I don't know of any city in America, I mean, maybe there's one or two someplace, but I don't know of any city in America where they've actually anybody is seriously talking about defunding the police. That was a stupid comment that was made by a couple of Democratic politicians back after the George Floyd murder that got amplified ad nauseum by Fox News. I mean, they, they're constantly repeating that, and there's simply no truth to it. James, thanks for the call. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? 
Tom, thanks so much for taking my call. Uh, Tom, any update on Joyce? Uh, is, is chemo successful? Is she doing well? Joyce, uh, to the best of my knowledge, she is on a uh, on a, a drug for her lung cancer that might give her a couple more years of, of quality life. So uh, as far as I know, Excellent. step by step. But what, what did you say? Um, oh, yeah, the other oh. thing, Tom, I wanted to talk about. Go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. No, Tom, uh, the other thing I want to talk about, um, I really think that uh, Democrats should start preparing for Nikki Haley. Uh, she's she's going to be the front runner. They should prepare for her right now. And the thing is, she's very popular among uh, soccer moms, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the people that put, put Trump basically 2016, and then they came back to Biden in 2020. Right. I mean, she's very popular among them. And the other thing I was puzzled about, I thought... Um, uh, Tim Scott suspended his campaign and endorsed Trump. What was he doing there on the stage? Did Tim Scott suspend his campaign this morning? No, not this morning. It was a while back. I thought I wrote it somewhere. Oh, where, no, Tim Scott was on the, on, the, on the stage last night. He was, he's still running for president. Oh, okay, I must have misread You're thinking somewhere. of but Rick yeah, Scott. I, Rick Scott, who Rick, was never running for president, the, the senator from Florida, he just this last week endorsed Donald Trump, and he's the senator from the state where, you know, Ron DeSantis is from, so gotcha. is governor of. Gotcha. So so that, that was a big slap in the face to Ron DeSantis. But, you know, what it tells me is that Rick Scott is, mm -hmm. you know, something we all knew all along. Um, that basically he has no moral core, he has no no uh, belief in democracy, small d democracy, um, and frankly no no faith in America. I mean anybody anybody who would endorse Trump. But you know Rick Scott is also worth seven hundred million dollars. You know the the help the the chain of hospitals that he started uh, was convicted of the largest Medicare fraud in the history of the United States, and he walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars from that. And so I think he's one of these billionaires who thinks that, um, you know, hey, if there's a, if, if America becomes a dictatorship, so what? I'll be fine. I'm, I'm rich. And I think he's wrong. I think All he right. should have a conversation with Fritz Tyson. Absolutely. And I believe they raided his, um, his, his company, the federal government raided his, his uh, health care company that yeah. he was running yeah, they for did. fraud because he was bill overbilling Medicare. Thank yeah. you, Tom. Have a good day. Thank yeah. You. Okay. Good, good, good talking to you, Omar. Thank you for the call. Now, this is, I, I think Rick Scott, in fact, I was thinking of writing an op-ed about it. Maybe I should for tomorrow. Rick Scott coming out and endorsing Donald Trump tells you everything that, is, that you need to know and everything that's wrong with people who are billionaires or near billionaires thinking that you know, it doesn't matter what happens to American democracy. It doesn't matter if they declare martial law on day one. Um, you know, I'm rich enough, I'll be, I'll be just fine, they're saying. And I don't think so. I mean, look at the billionaires in China who dared to defy President Xi. They're in jail now if they're not dead. Same thing with some of the oligarchs in Russia. You just don't stand up to strongmen. You're listening to Tom Hartman. At a recent congressional hearing on America's so-called labor shortage, mega banker Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase offered this insight. People actually have a lot of money, and they don't particularly feel like going back to work. Uh, Jamie, most people are living paycheck to paycheck, and since COVID-19 hit, millions have lost their jobs, savings, and even homes. So they're not exactly lollygagging around the house counting their cash. Instead of listening to the uber-rich class ignorance of Diamond, who pocketed $35 million in pay last year, 
Congress ought to be listening to actual workers explain why they're not rushing back to the jobs being offered by restaurant chains and such. They would point out that there's no labor shortage, there's a wage shortage. More fundamentally, there's a fairness shortage. It was not lost on restaurant workers, for example, that while millions of them were jobless last year, their corporate CEOs were grabbing millions, buying yachts, and living large. Yet, more than half of laid-off restaurant workers couldn't even get unemployment benefits because their wages had been too low to qualify. Then, there's the high risk of COVID exposure for restaurant employees, an appalling level of sexual harassment in their workplace, and demeaning treatment from abusive bosses and customers. No surprise, then, that more than half of employees said in a recent survey that they're not going back to those jobs. After all, even a dog knows the difference between being stumbled over and being kicked. To get the workers they need, corporate giants should try the free enterprise solution right at their fingertips. Raise pay, raise pay, improve conditions, and show respect. Create a place where people want to work. This is Jim Hightower saying, for a straightforward view from workers themselves, go to the advocacy group onefairwage.site. This is Wolf Moon, and you're listening to KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 FM in Portland and 91.7 FM on the coast in Nehalem, Manzanita, and Rockaway Beach, streaming worldwide at xray.fm. My name is Maya. I'm a student at Clark College who's studying social and environmental sciences. Hi, I'm Rosalyn. I'm a student at Washington State University. I'm studying biology and environmental sciences. We're here today with Monica Zazwitha, the Youth and Community Engagement Coordinator for Alliance for Community Engagement in Vancouver. Monica also works for the Stand Up to Oil Coalition. After listening to Greta Thunberg, you realized you had your head in the sand when it came to climate and public health issues. What were your next steps? As soon as I saw that uh, video with Greta Thunberg and she said, we will never forgive you if you do nothing, I was very terrified that my son wasn't going to have a future on our home, planet Earth. And I got so terrified that I knew I had to take action. I knew that if I did nothing, like she said in the speech, I knew that my son would be upset and sad of like why didn't his mother do more and I was not going to have that and I wanted my son to thrive on this planet so that he can have a future on this planet and everyone else because you know you can't be alone on earth and so I just immediately went on my phone and just started researching everything that I could workshops about climate change different meetings around town and I really didn't stop and don't stop till this day of trying to figure out what to say, what to do, how to act, how to be. I went into spaces that I was so scared because I, I am a Hispanic woman and throughout my whole life, I thought I was less than everybody else because that's just, that's just what was the untold thing. You know, you just, you just knew. I went into these circles with mostly older white people. I was like, no, I need to ask the questions. I need, what is methanol? What is, what is LNG? What, what is a city council meeting? How would you define the relationship between climate issues and public health? 
I would relate it as everything. It's we are nature. We are connected to Mother Earth. We are the air, the water, the the wind. We are here for a reason, and so it is. It is intertwined within each other. What we eat, how we behave towards each other, our mental health, our physical health is all connected with health, with with mentality, with just the way we we are together. And so, I just feel like it's 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 connected in the in the sweetest hug ever. The fossil fuel industry is responsible for a lot of air pollution and rising temperatures. How do you see the effects of the fossil fuel industry directly impacting low-income and minority neighborhoods? Um, I used to live uh, by the train station that's uh, in Fruit Valley, and uh, every second there would be a train, and things would be shaking, and there'd be so much noise, and my son would be so scared. And so we actually had to invest in some noise-canceling headphones and in some different um, meditative things that we could do for him. And so he was terrified when we lived there. So that wasn't good for his mental health. And also all the pollution there. Well, the fossil fuel uh, companies are selling a product that is hazardous material. And uh, low-income people have to live in communities where they have to suffer the health impacts. And that is a violation of our human rights and environmental justice. What, are, what can the average person do to help reduce negative health and environmental impacts from climate change? Well, they have to actually take a good, honest look at themselves and uh, what their carbon footprint is and, and really how much energy they're using. And because uh, we're all energy blind, really, of like what we have. And we've all been very spoiled with uh, this magic thing called fuel. Um, but now we know the health impacts of it. And so um, to get involved, um, I have created a climate activist wanted group on Nextdoor. And you can just send me a personal message there and I will put you on a list to be put on to the Alliance for Community Engagement email list. And uh, you can get updates on how you can get involved with making testimony, um, with just local events that are going on. And also I am always available to chat. So you can just send me your number and I can give you a call. I'm Maya. And I'm Roslyn. You're listening to KXRW Vancouver. We are here today talking to Monica about the relationship between health and the environment and environmental justice. Thank you for being here, Monica. How can people get in touch with you? You can go to Nextdoor and look up Climate Activist Wanted and send me a personal message and I will get a hold of you. Hey, Monica, thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for interviewing me and for everything that you do. Activism, activate, activate, activate. I spent close to five years in prison. Being there was difficult, but I was fortunate to find open hearts, open minds. At Open Hearts, Open Minds, we walk into prison to be with those inside. We use art, theater, writing, and music as a platform for internal exploration and transformation. I joined theater because I thought it would be fun. I was surprised to find the value of the gifts I received in that dark place. Improved self-esteem, increased empathy, a safe place to express emotions, and skills to navigate my anxiety and depression. Theater gave me the opportunity to powerfully show up in my own life. Art in prison kept me human. We believe that change is possible as we share and make art together. Open Hearts, Open Minds is proud to join other local nonprofits in this year's Give Guide. More information can be found at openheartsopenedminds.org. Welcome to the second hour of our program. Well, the uh, House of Representatives under uh, uh, dear leader Mike 
uh, MAGA Mike Johnson has adjourned for the week, and uh, everybody's heading home. They'll be back uh, theoretically on Monday or late Monday or you know, early Tuesday. Uh, they voted on a couple of uh, bills to, for example, re reduce Corrine Jean-Pierre's uh, salary to $1 a year, the White House press secretary. Uh, they tried to reduce the salary of the head of the EPA to, and the head of the Interior Department to a dollar a year. This is the really serious stuff that the Republicans and the House of Representatives are working on. Um, in the meantime, the government will shut down in nine days or eight days, and uh, they don't seem to have any plan at all for that. Over in the Senate, we're, by the way, we're waiting for Phil Itner to uh, connect uh, to us. Uh, do we have him? Is that why you're waving at me? Ah, hang on just a second. We may have Phil. Do we have him? Okay. Hey, Phil Itner is with us. Uh, hey, Phil. Sorry about that, Tom. Yeah. Man who needs no introduction, but let me quickly introduce you. Veteran war correspondent based in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, I understand you're in a different city in Lviv, I think, today. And uh, I am. You, you got a great video blog over on YouTube. I uh, always point people to uh, Philip Itner, P H I L L I P, or L I P, excuse me. I-T-T-N-E-R. And uh, so, Phil, uh, what's up? Well, I'm, ba I'm back in Ukraine, Tom. Uh, I'm, uh, I came back a little early. I'd been transiting through London, and uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Erwin uh, Redliner, who, who you may have heard of. He's been on this program. I, we've discussed it, as a matter of fact, and he's happy to come on again. So I'll try and link you two up. But he's here in Lviv opening up a center for children care or for children's care, for children's activities, something for them to do during the day, uh, aside from, you know, the threat of uh, air raid sirens and things like that. So he's opened up a facility here and he asked me to come and, uh, uh, you know, film some video for his uh, his organization, which is the Ukrainian Children's uh, Ukrainian Children's Care Pro Project, uh, mm -hmm. I believe, Ukrainian Children's Aid Project. There we go. Um, and uh, you know, it was lovely to see. I mean, it's bittersweet, of course, because these children at the beginning have this kind of thousand-yard stare, which no children, no child should have. And then they're introduced to things that, you know, bring them back to their childhood, where whether it's finger painting or, uh, you know, kind of arts and crafts kind of stuff. Uh, and, and as nice as it is to see the children become children again and lose that stoic, uh, you know, front that they put on because of the trauma of what they're going through, it's also really heartening to see the parents who for the first time are seeing their children be children again. So what, what Dr. Redliner is doing here, and what, you know, he's not the only one, but he's certainly contributing in a large degree, is very important because these children who are going through trauma now will be Ukraine's adults in five or 10 years or, or what have you. And, you know, it's traumatized people that tend to traumatize other people. So what's being done here in conjunction with the Ukrainian government and with a lot of Ukrainian aid groups here is to try and head that off and let these children have the childhood that's been stolen from them from this war. So I was only too happy to come back a little early, but I have to admit it kind of made me discombobulated. So I apologize for not uh, being here uh, on, on the precise time we agreed upon. No, so. it's all good. It's all good. Better, better late than never, as the old saying goes. So uh, I, I, the European Commissioner has, or the European Commission has uh, basically 
endorsed beginning the process of Ukrainian integration into the European Union. Um, the, can you tell us about this? This would be a multi-year process, I'm assuming. It, it's going to be a long process. Now, they're going to try and fast track it to a certain degree, but nobody uh, either here uh, in Ukraine or in Brussels is under any illusion uh, that the issue of corruption in particular uh, is uh, a major stumbling block uh, to EU membership. But yesterday's announcement uh, out of Brussels is a big deal because uh, not only does it provide a, a pathway to full EU citizen or you know, membership, but it also encourages the Ukrainians to know that there is a future after this war. And that's a really big deal because, uh, again, in my conversations with Ukrainians, um, I, I time and time again am running into this attitude of like, we don't know what our future is. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Will we survive? Will we win this war? Will we be a country called Ukraine. So for the EU to show its support and to show a way to a bright future within the European Union is not only important in terms of a logistical and a kind of method, you know, a method of getting into the EU, but it also is a huge boost for morale. So it's a big deal. Yeah, I get it. Um, I understand that there is a major battle around the, is it Dnipro or Dnipro uh, River? Dnipro. The I'm glad you brought it up. I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up, Tom, because we need to keep our eyes on the prize here. This is, I know there's distractions going on. There's, there's what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, there's lots of reasons for concern all around the world for a number of different reasons. But the Russians want us to forget about what's happening here. And the fact that the offensive that was so anticipated over the summer and spring was much slower than we had hoped um, has led a lot of people to become, um, you know, uh, skeptical of what's happening here. The fact that there is there is armor, there are tanks and armored personnel carriers on the left side, on the eastern side. The, it's called the left side because the river flows into the Black Sea. It flows in a southerly direction. So uh, on the left side of the flowing river, the Dnipro, um, they have now actually physically taken over the river, this major physical uh, obstacle. Uh, tanks and armored personnel carriers. And they're building this bridgehead, much like Normandy was during D-Day. We forget that it took, you know, some good four months for us to break out of Normandy during the Allied invasion of Europe. Well, in some ways, this is a bridgehead on the other side of the river, which will lead to an expansion and an ability for the Ukrainians to push on fronts that heretofore they weren't able to do. So strategically, this is a major development. And we have, um, you know, evidence, physical photos and satellite imagery showing, yes, the Ukrainians have crossed the river, they're on the other side, and that means that um, they're just going to keep pressuring the Russians. The Ukrainians are moving, they're, they're going to continue to move, even through the winter. There's going to be a period here, and it's going to happen very soon, where the, the, the heavy uh, rains are going to come, and the thaw, and there's going to, there's going to be a, 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 a lot of mud there's going to be a lot of mud, and then it'll freeze over. And the Ukrainian generals, and in particular the head of the intelligence unit, uh, Budanov, uh, has said, we're not stopping. We're going to continue to press upon the Russians. We've also heard something similar from the Russians. There is an expected Russian offensive that could be coming in a matter of days, if not weeks. We don't know exactly where that's going to strike, although the, the suspicion is, is it'll be farther north 
uh, along uh, the battlefront, more towards uh, the northern city of Kharkiv. Uh, if that's the case, there are a lot of Ukrainian defenses up there. But I find it interesting that the Russians wouldn't uh, attack this bridgehead, this, this foothold that they have on the other side of the river, because that's only going to expand. And the more resources the Ukrainians can funnel across the river and onto the kind of eastern side of the country where the Russian forces lie, um, they're only going to get stronger and stronger, whereas the sanctions and um, other issues, you know, the, the, the amount of ammunition that the Russians are going through only means that the Russians are being depleted and depleted and depleted, whereas the Ukrainians are getting the F-16 soon. We're, we're expecting to see M1A1 uh, Abrams, US, uh, the US main battle tank on the front lines here. The Ukrainians are getting stronger. The Russians are not. Doesn't hmm. mean the Russians are out of the fight doesn't mean we should over you know uh, underestimate the russians or indeed overestimate the ukrainians but this crossing of the river another big deal now this is the river that basically separates the the russian held territory to the east from ukraine proper to the west right that's right so the yeah. the, the east of the river is the donbass section and uh, the kind of a third of the country where the russians are are, are have actually taken and occupied land whereas the central part of the country where kiev is uh and that side of the river and then of course western ukraine where i am now in lviv that has pretty much been purged uh, of russian forces especially north of the capital right. we remember those massive battles at hostamel and bucha and all that um so that the east the eastern side of the river is where the russians are is where they're strongest uh, and they're gonna, the Ukrainians, if they can really get armored units onto that side of the river, so they're not obstructed by the river, they're going to be able to put heavy pressure on the Russians. This war is far from lost by the Ukrainians, but it depends on the West. And it's something that my Ukrainian friends said when I was traveling back to the States, they said, carry this message with you. We can win or we can lose, but you know, it's, it's very reliant in many ways on, on the support of the West. So if the West decides that they want Ukraine to win here, we can win. Yeah. If the West decides to abandon Ukraine, we can still lose. Yeah, but I totally get it. I understand they just hit a uh, Russian cargo ship in o Odessa, the Ukrainians did. They're, they're, they're continuing their attacks on water at sea. Yep, absolutely. The, the Black Sea Fleet uh, is still a major target. Uh, for the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians have been very, very crafty and cunning in the way that they've used new drone technology and have applied it to um, uh, basically unmanned torpedoes, surface torpedoes that they can use like you would a drone in the sky. Um, they're doing it on the sea, and they really, without a navy, Ukraine doesn't have a navy, they have a Coast Guard. That's all they need. They have no greater naval aspirations than just protecting their shoreline. So without a navy they have challenged and in effect forced one of the world's you know purported uh, most powerful navies the russian navy to pull back from crimea and go east uh into you know deeper waters east of ukraine uh into russia proper so um you know any ship that comes within distance of ukrainian uh a coastline is subject to either an attack from a missile or attack from one of these uh, uh, marine drones. Uh, it, it just put it puts paid the idea that Russia is the great vaunted military that it said it was before it stumbled into this catastrophic war. 
Yeah. The momentum is still with, with Ukraine. Maybe not as fast as we'd like, but they're really pushing the Russians. And, um, you know, it's, despite what Russian propaganda would have you believe, the Ukrainians are still gaining ground. Good news. Phil Idner, veteran war correspondent based in Kiev, Ukraine, in Lviv today. Uh, you can check out his video uh, blog over at YouTube. Phil, thanks so much for dropping by. Anytime, Tom. Good talking with you. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Senate Judiciary Committee, I'll, fill, I'll, I'll finish filling you in on that. And a crazy alert, stay tuned. And welcome back. Kelly in Kingman, Arizona. Hey, Kelly, what's on your mind today? How are you doing today, Professor? Good. What's up? So, so one of the things I want to remind, because I, you know, I listen to you daily, and one of the things I want to remind people out there that, that that listen to your show is that technically, you know, we're not at war, but uh, what our enemies are doing online and our social media is getting us to fight with each other. Oh yeah. So we need to all we need to all remind each other periodically that do you really know the person on the other end of that Snapchat or that who, whatever you're on? Yeah. Um, if, if you're getting fired up because of what somebody has convinced you of online, uh, it's probably a good bet that you're being tricked. Yeah. I, there was a, 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 a remarkable analysis that I was reading over the weekend, and I forget where. Um, I think it might have been uh, Jacobin or might even been a Politico, but it was, it was basically a review of the Mueller report and the work that they did back then. And what they found was that almost 80% of the Russian troll farm activity that was taking place on social media was directed at the black community uh, and, you know, against Hillary Clinton and, uh, or, or in favor of Donald Trump. But most, most of it was to discourage people from voting. And, the, this, and, and what they were, they was kind of updating this and saying that this is continuing to this day, that, that the attempts to stir racial hatred, to jack up you know, white racists on the one hand and, and you know, terrify black people on the other hand, by and large, or, or piss them off, um, are, are ongoing. And that you know, Russia was doing uh, the most of this back in 2016, and that a lot of it is now also being. And now they've got by, other countries helping. That's them. right, China and Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yep, yep. So yep. it's a mess. It's just just a, a friendly reminder that we're all on the same team. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> all righty. We need not hurt each other. We need to focus uh, on helping helping our ch- each other. Now we can move forward past this and make our enemies pay a little bit for it. Well said, Kelly. Thank you very much for that. Barbara in uh, Tompkinsville, Kentucky. Hey, Barbara, what's up? Hi. I'm going to switch topics from what I told him, and I I just wanted to give you... um, I I, I wondered about how many cases, court cases, against Trump have been sealed and are not available to us. Because, as a social worker, I was on a human trafficking task force for many years and back in 2008 we were very excited that Jeff uh, Jeffrey Epstein had been um, uh, arrested and was being tried and then we were very disappointed when they made a plea deal with him like none others has ever been made right. uh, and uh, so I was following those cases for years to come I worked in the court system so I had access to 
court documents everywhere. I could get them and whatever. And uh, I was following a case in 2016 where Trump was a co-defendant in a rape case of a 13-year-old. And I followed that case until during the last part of the, uh, just before the election, uh, the case had a court date. She dropped her charges. Yeah. 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 Uh, I I don't know if she was paid off, but she dropped her charges. Maybe she was just afraid of being attacked. No, she was threatened. She was threatened. She's in hiding. We don't know if she's still alive. Amazing. Yeah. I've been wondering, you know, to what extent Jeffrey Epstein was involved. I mean, he was getting loans from Deutsche Bank at the exact same time Trump was. And I'm wondering, and, and you've had two Deutsche Bank executives who were involved with this stuff commit suicide. And then the third one, Justin Kennedy, his father resigned the Supreme Court. I'm wondering if Epstein was blackmailing people for Trump. Thank you, Barbara. Missed my opening rant today? It's usually published over at HartmanReport.com where you can read it and share it with your friends for free. Check it out, HartmanReport.com. From Los Angeles to Columbia, South Carolina, from Birmingham, Alabama to Baltimore, universal basic income programs are chalking up proof after proof of their viability. Basically, just giving people, low-income people, poor people, somewhere between $500 and $1,500 a month, no strings attached, is lifting people out of poverty, getting them back on track, getting them into solid middle-class jobs, helping their children tremendously. This works. Now, we don't have to do UBI in the United States. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national health care program. Health expenses are whacking a lot of low-income people. We're the only country, developed country in the world that doesn't have free college education. Education expenses are whacking people. There's a lot we could do. We can subsidize housing. We can subsidize food. We do that with food stamps. We could expand it. There's a lot we could do to, to, to benefit from this. There's a whole report about that over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. 24 minutes past the hour, and uh, the I started to talk about this to, when we were trying to get Phil on the air, and then we, we got him, and so I kind of jumped off it, but the Senate Judiciary Committee was going to vote this morning on subpoenas to, uh, Dick Durbin is leading the committee, and God bless him, on subpoenas of uh, Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo, and about all the, the, the grooming, the gifts that they were giving to Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas, and they also want a list of uh, any transportation, lodging, gifts, and access to private clubs provided to any justice. Uh, there was a third target, Robin Arke- Arkley III, uh, who also was grooming these uh, Supreme Court justices, but he apparently has cooperated with the committee and gave them the information they want. But they note, this is from Dick Durbin, Leonard Leo has refor- refused to cooperate in any way. Harlan Crow claimed he was willing to, compor- to cooperate, but ultimately made only a limited and insufficient order. The Senate and the American people deserve to know the full extent of how billionaires and activists with interest before the court use their immense wealth to buy private access to these justices. This is why tomorrow the Judiciary Committee will vote to authorize subpoenas to Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo. Well, they tried to have that vote this morning. And the Republicans put forward 88 amendments to the, uh, to the subpoena, to the resolution for a subpoena. And, you know, just wackadoodle stuff. And it just so buried them, the Democrats on the committee, that they just basically had to say, okay, we're going 
we're going to table this until we can figure out what to do here. Um, so the official position of the GOP now, or at least the Republicans on the, on the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, is that uh, corruption on the highest court in the land is just fine with us. If billionaires want to buy Supreme Court justices, we are 100% down with that. We totally support it. So if any of these uh, people represent you, if any of these senators, I'm going to go through the list of the uh, Judiciary Committee members, if any of them represent you, you might want to call them and say, you know, I'd like to know about the billionaires who are grooming these Supreme Court justices. So here's the list. Dick Durbin, Lindsey Graham, Sheldon Whitehouse, Amy Klobuchar, Chris Coons, Richard Blumenthal, Maisie Hirono, Cory Booker, Alex Padilla, John Ossoff, Peter Welch, Chuck Grassley, John Cornyn, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, John Kennedy, Tom Tillis, and Marsha Blackburn. And boy, that's a real rogues gallery there on the right. But anyhow, if, you, if any of them represent you in the United States Senate, uh, and of course, you know, call, call Dick Durbin's office and say good on you and good luck and let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Um, because we need to get to the bottom of this. I, I think this is the worst bribery, political bribery scandal in American history. I mean, they literally bought off Clarence Thomas and got him to vote in Citizens United in favor of the billionaires. That's so wrong. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. I'll pick up your calls on the other side of the break right after I tell you about this bizarre new book, our crazy alert for the day. Stay tuned. Welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. And today we're reading from uh, Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. This is Chapter 11. It's titled Corporate Control of Politics, page 170. During the bruising primary election season of 2008, a right-wing group put together a 90-minute hit job on Hillary Clinton and wanted to run it on TV stations in strategic states. Federal Election Commission ruled that the advertisements for the documentary were actually campaign ads and thus fell under the restrictions on campaign spending of the McCain-Feingold Act and thus stopped them from airing. Corporate contributions to campaigns have been repeatedly banned and in various ways since 1907 when Republican President Teddy Roosevelt pushed through the Tillman Act. Citizens United, the right-wing group, sued, the Supreme, sued to the Supreme Court with right-wing, right-wing hitman and former Reagan Solicitor General Ted Olson, the man who argued Bush's side of Bush v. Gore, as their lead lawyer. This new case, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, presented the best opportunity for the Roberts Court to use its five-vote majority to completely rewrite the face of American politics rolling us back to the pre-1907 era of the robber barons. And if there was one man to do it, it was John Roberts. Although he was handsome with a nice smile and photogenic young children, Roberts was no friend to average working Americans. If anything, he was the most radical judicial activist appointed to the court in more than a century. He'd worked most of his life in the interest of the rich and powerful and was chomping at the bit for a chance to turn more of America over to his friends. As Jeffrey Tubin wrote in The New Yorker, quote, In every ma- major case since he became the nation's 17th Chief Justice, Roberts has sided with the prosecution over the defendant, 
the state over the condemned, the executive branch over the legislative, and the corporate defendant over the individual plaintiff. Even more than Scalia, who has embodied judicial conservatism during a generation of service on the Supreme Court, Roberts has served the interests and reflected the values of the contemporary Republican Party. End of quote. And the fastest way the modern Republican Party could recover its power over the next decade was to immediately clear away all impediments to unrestrained corporate participation in electoral politics. If a corporation likes a politician, it can ensure that he is elected every time. If it becomes upset with a politician, it can carpet bomb her district and a, with a few million dollars worth of ads and politically destroy her. In the Citizens United case, the Robert courts listen, Roberts Court listened to arguments and took briefs and even discussed it among themselves as if they were going to make a decision. But instead of deciding the case on the relatively narrow grounds on which it had originally been argued, whether a single part of a single piece of legislation, in this case McCain-Feingold, was unconstitutional, the court asked for it to be re-argued in September 2009 and asked that the breadth of the arguments be expanded to re-examine the rationales for Congress to have any power to regulate so-called free speech by corporations. In this, they were going along with a request from Theodore B. Olson, who argued Bush v. Gore and would not now not just look at this narrow case, but go back nearly 20 years to re-examine and perhaps overturn their own ruling in the Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case, where the court held that it was constitutional for Congress to pass limits on corporate political activities, as well as its decision in 2003 to uphold McCain-Feingold as constitutional. The setup for this 2010 decision came in June of 2007 in the Federal Election Commission versus Wisconsin Right to Life case, in which the Robert Courts ruled that the FCC could not prevent Wisconsin Right to Life from running ads just because it was a corporation. The idea of Congress passing laws that limited corporate free speech was clearly, clearly horrifying to both Roberts and Scalia. Scalia went after the 1990 Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case in which the then Rehnquist court had ruled that the Michigan Chamber of Commerce was limited in its free speech in a political campaign because it was a corporation. Scalia complained, this Austin was the only pre-McConnell case that this court had ever permitted the government to restrict political speech based on the corporate identity of the speaker. Austin upheld state restrictions on corporate independent expenditures, and God forbid the statute had been modeled after the federal statute that BCRA 203 amended. End of quote. The Austin case Scalia concluded, with four others nodding, was a significant departure from ancient First Amendment principles. In my view, it was wrongly decided. Scalia was quoted at length from opinions in the Gross Gene v. American Press 1936 case. In Scalia's words, quote, holding that corporations are guaranteed the freedom of speech and of press, safeguarded by the due process of law clause of the 14th Amendment. He also quoted the 1986 Pacific Gas and Electric Company versus Public Utility Commission of California case, the identity of the speaker is not decisive in determining whether speech is protected. Corporations and other associations like individuals contribute to the discussion, debate, and the dissemination of information and ideas that the First Amendment seeks to foster. The bottom line for Scalia was, quote, the principle that such advocacy is at the heart of the First Amendment's protection and is indispensable to decision-making in a democracy is no less true because the speech comes from a corporation rather than an individual. The book, Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back.
Hey, if you like the rants that I open the show with every day, they're typically published over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. So MAGA Mike and the Republicans want a religious test for people running for public office. They want to know that you are sufficiently Christian to be worthy of being elected. Right. MAGA Mike is one of these uh, seven mountain evangelicals. There are seven domains where these dominionists believe that we need to have religion completely take them over. Education, religion, family, business, government, military, arts and entertainment, and the media. Seriously. This is not what Jesus was preaching when he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto, unto God what is God's. This is the opposite, in fact, of what Jesus was teaching. It's the opposite of Matthew 25, where Jesus said, the only way to get to heaven is by feeding the hungry, healing the sick, helping the poor. It's, this is counter-Christian, anti-Christian, in fact. In fact, I think you could say it is the Antichrist's work. There's a piece about it over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Thirty-five minutes past the hour. So our crazy alert for the day: want to indoctrinate your toddlers into election denial? Uh, Representative Anna Paulina Luna has a book for you. Uh, this is from a, a book publishing company called Brave Books that is uh, heavily endorsed by Moms for Liberty and other uh, you know bigot groups like that. And uh, it's about the, the fruit in Fruitland. And you've got Senior Banana, uh, thinly disguised as Joe Biden. And you've got uh, uh, Mr. Orange, uh, the orange man, who is uh, thinly disguised as Donald Trump. Uh, but it's called The Legend of Naranja. And uh, it's a picture book, children's picture book. Uh, all the fruit in Fruitland are excited for the big race that will determine their next leader. Naranja is the crowd favorite. That's the orange guy. But Senior Banana has some tricks up his peel. Who will squeeze the day and become the next leader of Fruitland? The climax of the book comes as Senior Banana bumps Lady Mananza, a crowned green apple uh, who's overseeing the race, out of her airship, leaving her hanging by, the, by a root at the edge of the cliff. Firmly in the lead, Naranja selflessly turns around and rescues the apple, effectively giving an open to the banana to win the race, only to discover that no one cares that the orange is the real winner in everyone's heart. This is child abuse. <laughs> I don't know what else to call this. This is child abuse. By the way, the other thing I didn't mention about the debates last night, and you know, if, I, I probably should have led with it, was I, I believe it was Kristen Welker started out by saying, you know, Social Security's in big trouble. It's going to run out of money in X years, and Medicare is going to run out of money in X years, and what are you guys going to do about this? No one, including the moderators, said all of the problems with Social Security and Medicare, can, all the problems with Social Security can be solved by simply lifting the cap on Social Security taxes, FICA taxes, so that millionaires and billionaires pay the exact same rate as you and me. Nobody mentioned that. That would solve the entire problem for 75 years. Instead, the question was, how high do you want to raise the retirement age? This was repeated, this question was repeated by all three of the moderators, if my memory serves me correctly. Again, nobody mentioned the fact that if you simply said, billionaires have to pay the same amount of Social Security income tax as regular people do, Social Security is solvent forever. Also, 
Nobody mentioned the fact that if Medicare Advantage was not ripping off $148 billion a year out of the Medicare system through fraud, basically, you know, money that, that we would not be spending if people were on real Medicare instead of Medicare Advantage. And this is not because they're providing better services, because they're worse services. But if nobody mentioned the fact that if Medicare Advantage went away, Medicare would be solvent forever, too. It's Medicare Advantage that is gutting the Medicare system right now. And it's the lack of, of billionaires and multimillionaires and millionaires paying their damn taxes that's causing Social Security to have problems. And instead, what, are, what were we treated to? A 15-minute conversation about how high we should raise the retirement age. There was only one person on the stage. And I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was. I mean, it might have been, been Tim Scott who said that, uh, you know, raising the retirement age above 70 is going to be, uh, or 67 is what it is right now, uh, 270, is going to be a real challenge for farmers, for people who are out there working in their fields, because your body breaks down. Uh, this person said, you know, you guys, you have office jobs, you know, maybe you could work until you're 70, but I don't think it's right to ask somebody who works, you know, with their body to do that. I, I was just astonished. You know, by the by, the uh, essential dishonesty of the moderators. You know, now you expect that from the moderator from Salem. You know, he Hugh Hewitt, but uh, that Lester Holt went along with this, and that Kristen Welker was asking this question when they have to know, they have to know the essential lie beneath that question. And then, as you know, somebody called earlier, there was not a single question about climate change, which, frankly, I think is the biggest issue facing America, and there was not a single question about guns, which is arguably the second biggest issue facing America. Not one question. It was like NBC decided, oh, we're going to give the Republicans a solid. We're going to let them trash Joe Biden for two hours, and we're not going to ask one hard question. It was bizarre. It was genuinely bizarre. And then uh, Ramaswamy was complaining about it anyway. Oh, you liberals. Anyhow, let's pick up your calls here. K.R. in, in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, K.R., what's on your mind today? Well, Merrick Garland, uh, I blame him for everything that's going on right now in Congress. He went after the little fish for in, the insurrection, the uh, failed coup attempt. Mm -hmm. But as far as the people that are continuing to destroy our country, the biggest threat, the Republicans in Congress right now, and he hasn't done a damn thing about it. Yeah. Well, and I blame him. And He did and he, also, he did screw around for two years. I mean, you know, two years he could have been going after Donald Trump. And after and, and nobody is going after the Republicans in Congress. You're absolutely right, Kerr. And, and the other thing, too, is he didn't want to go after Trump. I know. And it was two prosecutors that, that kept... Well, he got shamed into it by the, by the House committee. Yeah. 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 I mean, basically, so, Liz Cheney shamed him into it. Yeah. Yeah. So I blame Merrick Garland, and I don't know why Joe Biden is, is continuing to keep him around. But he's, to he, me, he's he, just as dangerous as the Republicans. Yeah, I, I, I get it. 
you know, he's trying to be nonpartisan, but I, he's he's gone. I mean, it's, just, it's like the Republican debate last night with the, the moderators. He's just gone way too far. KR, thank you for the call. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I'll be back with more of your calls. Russ Choma is also going to drop by with a, a quick uh, report from the uh, trial, the Trump trial in, D- in New York. We'll be right back. And welcome back. Ragnar in uh, Mount Vernon, Washington. Hey, Ragnar, what's on your mind today? Hello, Final Tom. Viking this is Ragnar man. the Vikings. Indeed. <laughs> so what's up? Yeah, I called you a while ago. Anyway, I, I just think sitting here thinking about uh, the newspapers, you know, and uh, writing about the actual facts as they're happening, like Trump last night and his uh, talking. And, and I'm just wondering if uh, the big money has something to do with that. They're paying off this, uh, like, uh, New York Times and so forth. To keep you know to to keep them their mouth shut. I don't think it's that, Ragnar. I think what the New York Times is trying to do is to avoid losing their Republican readers. Yeah, that could they don't be. want to offend them. And you know, I mean, it's a sad day when telling the truth offends people, and 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 therefore you bow to the untruths. But yeah. uh, you know what yeah. NBC did last night, and what the New York Times does in their coverage of these of these things, uh, is uh, you know pandering. In my opinion, they yeah. pander into the to the GOP base. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, anyway, that was a thought I had. So I better talk to you about it. Okay, it's a it's a fine thought. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Yeah. Good talk okay. to you. Talk to you later. Yep, Donna in uh, Z- Zionville, North Carolina. Hey, Donna, what's on your mind today? Yeah, previously from Bonnie Lake, Washington. I, okay, my wife and I. Yeah, we drove cross country. My wife called you in the middle of driving cross country. I remember. You know, electric Mach E. It was not fun. Oh my. Okay. <laughs> was, yeah. Uh, we'll get there. It was in the nineties. Yeah, it was in the nineties and we couldn't even put on our air to save the battery life. So yeah. we just put on the fan. Yeah. <laughs> and Walmart parking lot saved us. But anyway, um I read Marion Williamson's book back in the 90s, uh, A Return to Love. So I've been mm-hmm. familiar with her for many years. And I I love to go on YouTube and see what's on there. And, you know, she's really hitting it. And I know with our voting system and not having ranked rank choice voting, you know, I will not vote for her. I'll vote for Biden. But she just, she hits the head the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. Marianne is 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 very smart and and very competent, and she understands the issues really well. And uh, she's a great person. I've known Marianne for years. Um, yeah. I don't I don't it's support really smart. I don't support her presidential campaign or anybody's uh, against Biden right now. I just don't think we can afford it. Um, you know, I I, I agree. I agree. Uh, but she she makes me feel like I'm not alone in this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. after your show is. But um, I just real quick, there's an app on your phone uh, called Five Calls. Um, I learned it in an indivisible meeting years ago, mm-hmm. and um, and it gives the top issues and a script, and you put in your information, and it comes up with your or your legislators' information, and it is so helpful to mm-hmm. keep in touch with our legislators and knowing. Mm-hmm. 
you know what to say. Both federal and state. Five, five calls. It's nationwide, as far as I. No, I mean, does it give you the information on your state legislators as well as your federal legislators? Oh, um, let me think. No, I, I think it's just federal. It's just federal. Yeah. Well, it's a good start. Yeah. It's a good start. Thanks for that, Donna. Yeah. Thanks it for the is. information. It's excellent. And I'm glad you guys made it across Thanks, the country. Um, <laughs> Oh, we do. I'm missing the mountain, but we're here. (laughs) I get it. Okay, Donna, thanks for the call. Uh, great Great talking with you. It's 46 minutes past the hour. We'll be right back. Thanks so much for sharing our program and for reaching out to our stations and sponsors and letting them know that you're listening. It really means a lot to us. Welcome back. On the line with us, uh, investigative reporter from the Washington Bureau of Mother Jones, Russ Choma, who was in the in, in the courtroom uh, when Ivanka Trump was testifying yesterday. We didn't have a chance to catch up with him yesterday because we had Congressman Pocan on for the whole hour taking calls. Um, Russ, welcome, welcome back. Uh, tell us about this. I, I understand the, 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 the shocking moment for, at least for Lisa Rubin on MSNBC, was when uh, Ivanka revealed that Donald was uh, lying to Deutsche Bank by putting up his kids' assets as if they were his own. Um, is that accurate? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it's a perfect example of the sort of the testimony that's been going on. You know, there's a lot of details that have been coming out. Uh, and a lot of these things uh, on their own maybe are not, uh, are not like a, a huge thing. But, yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the moments. Overall, her testimony stood out also because she testified like a normal person. She was very calm. She was very polite. But she also, the thing that I noticed the most, the thing that was my big takeaway, is that she just couldn't recall anything mm. when she was asked about it. Uh, and her memory did get better when she was cross-examined by her father's attorneys. But most of her question, or most of her answers to questions involved, I do not recall, or I only recall it because in a deposition, I was shown this. Um, and so that was uh, kind of like one of the big takeaways. But but I think I think to the, the point uh, is that uh, there's a lot of documents in this case. And mm-hmm. the documents are what uh, the Attorney General's office kept on showing to her whenever she said she didn't recall. They would pull out an email and say, well, you did send this email. Do you recall now? And she kept on saying, no, no, I still don't recall. But she also couldn't deny the documents. And she over and over and over, she kept on saying, yes, that's a true document. And so all these documents, I mean, the, the documents... Uh, that he sent to Deutsche Bank. I mean, they show all this. Uh, so her attempts to sort of not remember things, uh, I don't think made a huge difference. Yeah, and, and and the reason that she was saying that, I'm assuming, is because if you lie under oath, you can go to prison. I mean, you can go to jail either or be fined or whatever. I mean, you know, it's perjury. Um, and if you refuse to answer, of course, they can draw an ad- adverse inference. They can assume that the worst... Um, but if you simply say, I don't remember, that's kind of the easy out for everything. Right. But again, you know, they, they would say, do you remember? And she said, I don't. They'd hold up a document. They said, do you remember now? And she'd say, no, I still don't. And then they'd say, but do you have any reason to think that this email is false? And she'd say, no, I don't. Right. And so they'd say, okay, well, that goes into evidence then. So, uh, and you know, there's no jury. There's just a judge. Right. Uh, and I, I, don't, I don't think the judge was fooled by any of it. I mean, I, I think it is a little bit fair to say you don't remember an email from 12 years ago. But she also said that she didn't remember, you know, $160 million 
loan offers, that sort of thing. So yeah. that, that, that stretch, and also with the emails, I mean, presumably she was prepared for all this, and so uh, she would have had an opportunity to think about it a little bit harder. Yeah, and, and figure out what she couldn't remember. Now, this, right. this thing of, of Trump borrowing from his kids, I, you know, I did not know that Trump had moved um, a lot of his assets into, uh, into, the, into trusts or whatever for his kids. What, did we learn the extent of that, how much, how much money Trump has, has given to his kids and how irrevocable it may be? So, I mean, there was some talk about the trust. I mean, the reality is at the end of the day, he still controls almost everything. Mm. You know, their take is still very, very small. When he was in the White House, uh, you know, everything was put into a trust, but he's still the sole beneficiary. On almost every deal he did, with the exception of the old post office, he controlled almost all of it. Um, But, you know, she had uh, some of her own uh, successful things, uh, you know, her her fashion line, that sort of thing. Um, Don Jr., tried getting a couple things going and they never really took off. And Eric's work has almost entirely been with a company, but there's, there's financial machinations, but at the end of the day, it all goes back to Trump. Yeah, yeah, interesting. How, what, uh, what, what's going forward with the trial? What, what's, what's happening today? What's happening in the future? How long is this gonna last? What, what, what outcome are you anticipating? Well, so today, the, so the Attorney General's office is done presenting their case. So, you know, Trump's team is going to start presenting their case today. There was uh, some wrangling about, uh, you know, Trump's team wants the whole thing dismissed. You know, they've asked and they're asking again. There was some back and forth about it. Judge Engren didn't seem particularly convinced of it before. doesn't seem particularly convinced of it by now. And, I mean, their argument is sort of like, well, what they've been saying, well, there's, there's no victim. You know, the banks are all happy. They got their money back. And Engron has said over and over and over again, yeah, but there was still fraud. Um, right. Plus, the then, banks didn't make anything close to the interest payments that they could have made if he had been honest. Right. There was a significant amount of money more. But but the, the Trump people have hammered over and over that Deutsche Bank and the other ones, they were always very happy to get the money they got. But, of course, they would have liked more money. Um and, and you know, one of the, that is I thought one of the interesting, another one of the interesting things from from uh, Ivanka's testimony was that she was very involved in soliciting loan offers for the Doral uh, golf course, and they went through five or six other offers from other lending institutions that had not seen the cooked up numbers. They they had just like a basic understanding, and the rates they offered were much much worse. Uh, and so, I mean, it is pretty clear, I think, that the Trumps could not have gotten the rates they had gotten if they had presented an accurate financial picture. If they hadn't lied. And, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, when, uh, so I, I also read a piece that said that, there, that the, the Trump defense team wanted to bring in over 100 witnesses. Am I recalling? Right. I'm, some, sometimes I mix up the different trials. Is that this trial? Well, I, I can't remember hundreds of number, but they, they have a they have plans for a lot of them. And there was some legal wrangling. You know, the the um, attorney general's office today was saying, you know, look, we don't need to hear from a number of these people. The, the Trump team has said that they'll take until December fifteenth to present their case, which is a long time. Uh, they also said, and this is sort of notable. They they had said, well, we'll, we'll need to. 
will need to question Ivanka for probably four or five hours, and they questioned her for about 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. So what they say is not not always something, you know, sort of take it with a grain of salt. Um, Their their case, I think, is largely going to be people who they deem to be real estate experts and who will come on and say, yeah, no, I'd pay more money for that property. Yeah, no, that's not a crazy amount of money to put down. Um, Mm -hmm. Or people who say, yeah, I don't really take it seriously when I see a financial statement. I, I do my own do my own work. And I, you know, I think those are, you know, that's a valid thing to, for a witness to say, but how long does it take to bring on witnesses who say that? And how many do you need that, that may come into play. Um, and, and like I said, you know, with estimating how long they're going to take, they seem to have uh, a tendency to say, Oh, this is going to take a lot longer than it will. And uh, which sort of goes with the strategy they've been doing. It's just sort of making everything as difficult as possible for everyone throughout the trial. Right. Um, so it's a little tough to say exactly how long. I, it's got a couple more weeks, I think. Just a, just a couple of weeks. But, they're, but the bottom line is they're trying to drag it out. This is clearly part of their strategy. Uh, uh, well, well, I think, I think you know, I, I think there's just a, whenever he's in the courtroom, they, they perform a lot and they do a lot of delaying and they argue about everything. And, you know, they, they stand up to make an objection and they argue and the judge gives them an answer and they keep arguing and he gives them an answer again and they keep arguing and it goes on and on and on. Uh, so I think some of it is just the way they're doing things. I think also, I think we've talked about this before, uh, the longer it goes on, the more opportunities they have, uh, that maybe the judge will make some sort of mistake that they can appeal. Uh, so that may also be part of it, uh, or the more they frustrate him, maybe, maybe he'll make a mistake they can appeal. Um, but I think at the end of the day, they, you know, he's he's not one to let people just keep repeating the same thing over and over. So, I mean, I think at the end of the day, once they get their witnesses up, they say what they have to say, he'll move it along. Russ, are you uh, covering any of the other trials? I see you're the, 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 you're the Washington Bureau reporter. Are you are you covering the Washington, D.C. trial also? I've covered a little bit of it. I covered the gag order portion of it because it's related to the New York one. Mm-hmm. Um, good thing is that we have a number of Washington reporters. Um, right. And so I've, I've covered a bit of it. I'm, I'm not getting into the, the, the Georgia one as much. But, but, I mean, there is some natural crossover here. And, I mean, especially because, you know, we, you and I have talked quite a bit about his behavior in the court, his strategy in court, what his lawyers are up to. And I think we can expect... Uh, similar things and similar questions and similar strategies uh, for the other trials. And it'll be interesting to see if it changes from a state level to federal level, because, you know, there's sort of a higher risk when you start playing games at the federal level. Uh, But, you know, at least with a gag order, his attorneys in that case, which which I did cover, I mean, they they were uh, seemed like they were trying to irritate the judge and that they were not afraid to spout off and not afraid to try to make it political. Right. So we may be in for a ride on that one as well. So in the the D.C. case, though, is a criminal case. It's not a civil case. He's looking at jail instead of losing his empire, right? Right. Uh, yeah, and I mean, that, it's it's he's got a lot of challenges on a lot of levels. Uh, I, I've always submitted that him losing that money may, may be more upsetting to him than, than the possibility of anything else. But yeah, but yeah that, I mean, especially on the federal level, the consequences are a lot bigger. And uh, the, you know, if you make an error, the, uh, the, what, what can happen to you is, is a sort of a lot more uh, scary. Yeah, I don't think he thinks he's ever going to go to jail. I think he thinks he can just drag out appeals until, until the day he dies. Uh, what's what's you? To a certain degree, I mean that that is the way the system <laughs> the system can work. I mean, you, yeah. a good lawyer can tie things up for a very very long time. And I, I think you and I have talked about this as well. One of the the confusing things is that he does have some good attorneys, and I'm a little surprised that the you know the fraud case ever got as far as it got because 
a good attorney could have dragged it out longer and could have uh, argued a lot more substantially about things. And I, you know, I think that's been one of the Judge Engrang's frustrations. Yeah. That it hasn't been very substantive. Yeah, it's fascinating. Russ Choma, an investigative reporter with the Washington Bureau of Mother Jones, motherjones.com. His Twitter handle is Russ Choma, R-U-S-S-C-H-O-M-A. Russ, thanks so much for dropping by. I really appreciate the insights. No problem. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you. We will be back on the other side of this break uh, with Cole Stangler. Paris is not dead. And is Netanyahu miscalculating around Gaza? We'll talk about all those things. Stay with us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. If you're a corporate employee, you know that something unpleasant is afoot when top executives are suddenly issuing statements about how committed they are to their employees, making sure that all of them are treated with dignity and respect. For example, the PR chief of a global outfit named Teleperformance, one of the world's largest call centers, was recently going on and on about how, quote, we value our people and their well-being, safety, and happiness. Why did the corporation feel such a desperate need to proclaim its virtue? Because it's been caught in a nasty scheme to spy on its own workers. Teleperformance, a $6.7 billion global behemoth that handles customer service calls for Amazon, Apple, Uber, etc., saves money on overhead by making most of its 380,000 employees around the world work from their own homes. That can be a convenience for many workers, but a new corporate policy first imposed in March on thousands of its workers in Colombia is an Orwellian nightmare. Teleperformance is pressuring them to sign an eight-page addendum to their employee contracts, allowing corporate-controlled video cameras, electronic audio devices, and data collection tools to be put in their homes to monitor their actions. I work in my bedroom, one employee noted. I don't want to have a camera in my bedroom. Neither would I, and I doubt that Teleperformance's $20 million a year CEO would allow one in his mansion. Uglier yet, the privacy-obliterating contract requires that even the children of employees can be spied on at home. Nonetheless, the Colombian worker signed because her supervisor, she could lose her job if she refused. Of course, Teleperformance Inc. assures us that the data it collects on children is not shared elsewhere. But how do we know that? Trust us, they say. This is Jim Hightower saying, do you? You're listening to X-Ray FM, KXRY Portland, at 91.1 and 107.1 FM, and in Nehalem, Wheeler, and Manzanita, and Rockaway Beach, at 91.7 FM, streaming online everywhere, live and archived, at x-ray.fm. Radio is yours. Radio is yours. X-Ray FM would like listeners to know about Portland Parks Foundation, Director Park, Cully Park, Gateway Green, the Barbara Walker Crossing, a new Rose City Park playground. Bringing back the Elk Fountain, reinventing O'Brien Square. Baseball, basketball, biking and hiking, gardens and farms, concerts and festivals, and, and so, so much, much more. more. Only one nonprofit works citywide to make a difference for every neighborhood, every community, and every park in Portland. We're, We're Portland, Portland Parks, Parks Foundation, Foundation, and, and we, we help people help parks. parks. Portland Parks Foundation is proud to join other local nonprofits in this year's Give Guide. More information at giveguide.org. 
This is Ross Beach, host of Alive with Pleasure with this week's edition of the X-Ray FM Concert Calendar, a highly abridged list highlighting some of the many live music shows in the Portland area for the weekend starting on this Friday, November the 10th. Friday night brings us Joan Osborne at the Aladdin Theater, Ms. Lauren Hill at the Moda Center, Beach Fossils at the Roseland, Genesis Owusu at the Star Theater, and Stephanie Schneiderman at the Laurel Thirst. Then on Saturday, Dizzy comes to Polaris Hall, a giant dog will be at Dante's, Aiden Bissette will be at Holocene, Scott Yoder plays The Fixin' Two, Actors will be at the Coffin Club, and Margaret Glaspie and Cat Clyde come to Mississippi Studios. Then on Sunday night, local band The Prairie Benders has a CD release show at the Kenton Club, Tally's plays the show bar, ZZ Ward will be at Revolution Hall, and Fever Ray comes to the Roseland Theater. On Monday, Liz Fair will be at Revolution Hall, and St. Paul and the Broken Bones come to the Crystal Ballroom. Then on Tuesday, the Linda Lindas will be at Revolution Hall, Noah Gunderson comes to the Aladdin Theater, and Joy Oladokun comes to the Crystal Ballroom. On Wednesday, we'll have Creature Party at Holocene, No Name will be at the Roseland Theater, and the new pornographers come to Revolution Hall. Then Thursday night, local band Lawrence Elk has a release show at the Fixin' 2, Simmel will be at Revolution Hall, Kuinka comes to the Get Down, and Wynn plays at the Wonder Ballroom. If you're just learning the name of some of these artists like I did this week, I've got good news. I'll be spinning many of them on my radio show, Alive with Pleasure, this Friday afternoon from 2 to 4 and every Friday afternoon as part of these fantastic Friday afternoon evening lineup here on X-Ray FM. If you know about a show that you'd like included in this concert list, email those details to AliveWithPleasureRadio at gmail.com. This has been Ross Beach with this weekend's X-Ray FM concert calendar for Portland, Oregon. Radio is yours. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1897. That was the day that Dorothy Day, a leader of the Catholic worker movement, was born in Brooklyn, New York. As a young girl, her family moved to San Francisco. Her father lost his job as a sports writer due to the devastating earthquake of 1906, and the family relocated again to Chicago. In 1932, she met Peter Morin, and together they founded the Catholic Worker Movement, a faith-based social justice effort. The Catholic workers opened what they called Houses of Hospitality to serve those in need. Dorothy helped to co-found The Catholic Worker, a monthly newspaper that became a voice for poor and working people. While writing for the paper, Dorothy traveled and visited with some of the most exploited workers in the country. She talked with migrant agricultural workers in California and was arrested for supporting the United Farm Workers in 1973. In 1940, she visited the Hooverville encampment in Seattle, Washington. Dorothy's reporting vividly demonstrated how her faith informed her activism. She wrote, quote, The rain poured down, underneath was mud, ankle deep, and the long lane that cut between the rows of shacks reflected the gray clouds in its pools. But Christ is there. I thought sadly, there in the mud, in the shacks with his poor, with them he is trying to find a place to lay his head. With them he hungers, and with them he suffers fatigue of body and soul. Behold, O God, our Redeemer, and look upon the face of thy Christ. There in the dumps, among the creatures who still are men, have pity on them and on us who permit such things to be. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. 
2023 is on track to be the hottest year on record. With the impacts of climate change hitting close to home, Kat wanted to make a difference, but she didn't know where to start. Then Kat learned about Friends of Trees. Kat discovered that she could make a real difference by volunteering at a Friends of Trees planting event at a neighborhood or natural area where neighbors and other volunteers come together to plant trees. A lot of trees. Kat realized that Friends of Trees is amazing because trees are amazing. Not only do trees fight climate change, but when planted, the Friends of Trees way, prioritizing programming that is equitable and inclusive, trees are climate justice. Friends of Trees is proud to join other local nonprofits in this year's Give Guide. More information at giveguide.org. is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome to the third hour of our program. On the line with us, our old buddy Cole Stangler, the journalist based in Marseille, France, contributor to The Nation, Jacobin, France 24, the International News Network, and he has a new book up, Paris is Not Dead, Surviving Hypergentrification in the City of Light. ColeStangler.com, C-O-L-E-S-T-A-N-G-L-E-R.com is the website, and it's also the Twitter handle. Cole, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we talked, and uh, I, I love your book. Uh, it, first of all, it has. Thank, thank you so much for having me. Um, oh, my pleasure. Uh, tell us what provoked you to write this book. Yeah, you know, I was I was living in in the north of Paris and in, in the 18th small and in the north of the city, and you know, I, I, I was interested in kind of the just the richness, um, diversity of, of the place that I was living in, and I think. You know, without wanting to badmouth, you know, too my, you know, too many journalistic colleagues, I was kind of struck by the, the gap between the Paris that I think gets portrayed so much uh, uh, nationally and internationally, certainly, and then the actual Paris that I was living in this 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 vibrant working class uh, neighborhood in, in the north. So seeing kind of that gap, I think, made me want to right in, in in certain ways a kind of reported celebration, you know, in 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 many respects of this neighborhood, but. That's part of it, and I think also seeing, you know, the fact that this it, it's it's alluded to in the title, uh, uh, or par partially in the title of the book, the fact that there's tremendous gentrification, that that this part of the city that's that's so great is also um, unfortunately fading. But the battle isn't isn't quite over. So I'm trying to kind of capture these these two things. It's a celebration of what what what's what still exists, but it's also kind of a warning of of you know the fact that this this part of the city um, is, is is fading. I think most Americans are familiar with the word gentrification. I'm not sure all of them understand exactly what it means or how it plays out. Can you can you describe what you mean when you talk about hyper gentrification in the subtitle of your book and and how it might be different the way it's playing out in Paris than than the way it might play out in uh, New York or in Boise? Yeah, I mean, I think I think, you know, when when we use when I use the word gentrification, I'm, I'm talking about an economic process that I think they're really two fundamental um, kind of manifestations of this process. One is rent hikes, so rapid, so, so significant rent hikes um, taking place in in urban areas, and the second part of that is is displacement. So you have people that are being forced to to leave, and you have this process that can you know completely transform 
urban areas. We've seen it in so many cities in the United States. Um, you know, I, I'm from the Northeast. I think about a place like New York, New York City, that has just been changed so much from the city that I knew that, I, you know, when I was growing up there or when I grew up around there, excuse me, or San Francisco. You have a lot of these cases in the United States of these cities that have been just completely transformed, low income, working class people having to leave. And that changes the character of, of, of cities. And in a lot of ways, it's, 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 it's tragic to see the kind of identity being being sucked out of, of these places because normal people, ordinary people can't afford to live in them. So that's the process. Paris, you know, I use the word hyper gentrification because it's already a city that um, has a, a lot of wealth in it. We're not talking about uh, neighborhoods that are that are very, very poor. We're talking about neighborhoods that are you know, where ordinary people can still afford to live um, that have you know, some amount of, of wealth in them. But I think we've seen so many waves of this play out that and I think we're kind of at a very advanced stage in the city of Paris. Um, one other kind of very specific thing about Paris is that the city is is already very, very dense. Um, and so it means that one of the solutions you know people talk about for, for dealing with housing is often to, to build more housing. That's part of it, increasing supply. But that can be quite hard to do in a place like Paris, where the city is already tremendously dense. Um, so that, that's just kind of one, one, one important aspect I would underline. I, 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 reading in your book, you were talking about how you can still find an apartment, at least in this part of Paris where you were living for five, six, seven hundred euros a month. But it it's going to be a disaster. It's 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 going to have a bathroom down the hall, or it's going to, you know, uh, open onto a busy street, or uh, you'll have you have to deal with rats crawling all over you. Um, how bad is it? I mean, how how bad has the situation become, and and to what extent have the have the working class been driven out of Paris and its and its suburbs? Yeah, you know, the the rent hikes have, uh, you know, I think since the year two thousand, roughly, you know, have gone up. Uh, housing costs have, inc have increased three times since the year 2000. Wow. Um, you know, you have over you have over three 10, times 000. or 300 percent. Two two hundred percent. So so, you know, you have more than 10,000 people that um, have been leaving the city every year, according to the the official data. Um, and as you mentioned, yes. Yeah, so, so these neighborhoods, people are living in you know kind of cramped spaces to to be able to to hold on. But I think you know, in in some ways, you know, I didn't want to. You know, the, the, the book is, uh, is is kind of trying to raise the alarm in, 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 in some respects in the Anglophone world, but it's also trying to celebrate these neighborhoods for what they are. And, you know, um, these are tremendously diverse places. I think that's that's something that can often be forgotten about in, in you know, outside of France, just how multicultural and diverse of a city Paris is and really France is as, as a country. And so, you know, the, the places that I'm, that I'm talking about in the book, you know, have have large shares of, of immigrant population from West Africa, from North Africa, from China, from India. We don't often think about, you know, Paris as being this sort of melting pot, but it is in a lot of respects. And that's because of historically, you know, there's been there's been affordable housing in the city. And that, you know, I'm trying to kind of also show when you take that away out of the equation, it, you know, it means that you have a um, you know, negative impact on, on the character of the city. And I think you know, just another aspect to to highlight what we're talking about, you know, why these neighborhoods have persisted over the years. Right now, there's one really key, uh, you know, many key elements, but I think one above all that I that I want to highlight, and that is we have something called social housing in uh, in, in France. So that's that's state managed, state regulated housing uh, at below market rates. And um, if you look at these neighborhoods where the working class still lives, 
you have you have pretty high shares of social housing. That's one of the really important policy tools that, that that's quite effective that we don't have, unfortunately, in the United States. How would we do that in the United States? How would the how would that lesson from Paris translate into into a city in America? Yeah, you know, I, I think you know there there are a few kind of policy measures. So social housing is a big one. It, it, it's interesting. I think the conversation is shifting a little bit. It seems like, although I'm obviously not not you know on the ground in, in the U.S. But there seems to be an acknowledgement that that maybe we should be turning more to these kind of solutions we have in Europe for dealing with housing, social mm -hmm. housing being one of them. I think Seattle just, um, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of years ago passed a, a referendum that created a, a social housing agency to start experimenting with this. Because, you know, if there's one thing, again, I'll, I'm repeating myself, but I think it's so important to emphasize for, for American audiences. In the U.S., we often talk about just, you know, the Yimbies versus the NIMBYs. You know, yes, in my backyard, not in my backyard. I'm simplifying, but oftentimes the debate can kind of be, you know, simplified into this, you know, do you want more supply? Do you not want more supply? And, you know, obviously that's part of the equation, but, you know, it, it depends who, who owns the housing, who owns that supply. Social housing is the government stepping into the market and saying, we're going to um, uh, build housing or manage the housing and regulate the price. So social housing is so key. And then rent controls are another tool that we do see in the United States, uh, to some extent, in Paris, they're they're experimenting with them again now after a long break of not having rent controls. That's a very, um, you know, it's an, it's an important tool right. as well. It's not a, a magic silver bullet, but I think you know, let's look at how Europeans regulate housing to think about, you know, how can we deal with some of these problems that we have in the United States. I hope that's one of the takeaways, at least of, of how what. does how does social uh, housing differ from what we refer to in America as the projects. Yeah, well, you know, I think I think one big difference is that you've had just a lot more government funding of, of social housing. It's been recognized as a as a kind of important policy tool, and it's not reserved for the the only the the, the least well off in France. Mm -hmm. um, it's not reserved for just the lowest uh, income bracket. You know, people who are uh, lower to middle income, even to middle income, have the right to have social housing. And it's actually even a, a source of debate in Paris where people, people are saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be allowing so many middle-class people access to social housing. So, um, you know, you do have this tradition of having, uh, so, so good funding for the program, uh, quality housing stock too, that, that's such an important point. If you look at the social housing that's being built in Paris today, um, you know, these are, these are nice looking places. They're, they're enjoyable places to live. And I've got, I got to tour a few of them for, for, for reporting. Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a question of, of political will too. You know, it's been a priority. This has been, a, uh, you know, a priority to fund this and to use it as a tool to combat uh, the housing crisis in Europe. And I think, you know, that we're starting to to maybe think that way a little bit in the U.S., but but maybe maybe not there yet. Yeah, it sounds like sounds fascinating. The the book is uh, remarkable. Paris is not dead. Surviving hyper gentrification in the city of light by Cole Stangler, the the new book. And uh, Cole, thanks so much for dropping by. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, as always. Great, great speaking with you. Um, and good luck with the book. It's, it's marvelous. We'll be thanks. back uh, on the other side of this break. Is Netanyahu miscalculating over Gaza? One of his predecessors thinks so. I'll tell you about that. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And, of course, I'll be picking up your calls. It's 16 minutes past the hour here on the Tom Hartman Program, helping you win the water cooler wars.
And uh, welcome back. Joe in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how are you? I'm fine. What's up? Yeah, let me, you are my, truly my last bastion of sanity, Tom. Well, thank you. <laughs> yes, hope. truly. Anyway, let me run this idea past you. Let me, let me tell you what you think. Uh, this is what might put Trump over the edge. Uh, we all know he's walking pretty close to that right now, but this might put him over the edge. Uh, maybe Hillary should put down that glass of wine and the bowl of popcorn and get off the couch and jump back in the race for 2024. What, what do you think? I don't think there's any chance that she's going to do that. And if she did, I think it would probably not work out well for her. By the way, she's not no, sitting on the couch yeah, drinking wine serious. and eating popcorn. She, she was on, uh, I believe it was The, the View a couple, uh, yesterday or the day before and did this oh, little eight, Yeah, she did this little eight-minute summary of the history of the Middle East that just has people going, whoa, and that could have been our president, you know? So, yeah, yeah. She's, she's out no, there I, I didn't, doing good yeah, stuff. Yeah, but, I mean, that would, really, that would really make things interesting if she got back in the running and she went up against the... Uh, the orange, uh, the orange man again. Yeah. That would be something. I agree. It would yeah. be, but uh, it ain't going to happen. Joe, thanks for the call. Nice to hear from you. Uh, John in Cambria, California. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, thanks, Tom. I have a comment uh, regarding like the media accountability for how they treat uh, Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also have a book recommendation for you. But um, I think that uh, the media doesn't do it because... Republicans don't hold themselves accountable, and Democrats tend to hold themselves accountable for mistakes, for gaps, for anything. Yeah. You know, and um, if there's no basically reward for the media to point out the Democrats' mistakes, I mean, to, to point out the uh, Republicans' mistakes, because Republican voters don't care. That's true. They just don't care. Yeah, and so there's no result for them to to like a tangible result to say, look at we did this, we reported on this, and look at what happened. Democrats, we were constantly bashing ourselves in the media. Yeah, and it's like, why? Why are we doing this? Why don't we just? Why did we get rid of Al Franken? That was the stupidest thing you could do. Yeah, I agree. And we pay the price for that. I agree. You I know? agree. Uh, we caved into um, the into the right wing hysteria machine. Uh, but it was running yeah. full full tilt boogie. I mean, they, they were it, it, and 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 also the uh, the phony social media machine, you know. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, 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 I I I get it, John. I I don't think hey. that the newspaper. I don't think the New York Times is sitting around, you know, being quite as Machiavellian as you're suggesting. I do think though that they are that they live in fear of the Republicans criticizing their reporting. Oh yeah, without a doubt, the failing New York Times. It's been failing for what eight years now. Yeah. Well. When is it finally going to fail? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I read the New York Times. I subscribe to the New York Times. I'm a big fan of the New York Times, actually. And, and yeah. generally speaking, they do a pretty good job. But when it comes to political reporting, it's been a friggin' disaster. And, I, you yeah. know, it's, it's uh, I, I don't know if this is coming from the top down or if this is coming from the bottom up, if it's the reporters, if it's, I, I just don't know what it is. But they, you know, they, they fixate on every negative thing about Joe Biden. And then they don't, and then Donald Trump comes out and 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 you know mixes up north korea and china and hungary and afghanistan or ukraine and there's not a word about it uh it's just amazing john thank you for the call we'll be right back
You're listening to X-Ray FM, and the following episode is a rebroadcast from the past. Enjoy. You're listening to X-Ray FM at 91.1 and 107.1 FM. And Rockaway Beach at 91.7 FM, streaming online everywhere at x-ray.fm. Radio is yours. Track of it. Well, now there's this fascinating stuff. Your attention, please. Your attention, please. It's time to raise a glass. What they found was that they 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 took a group of 132 healthy adults, retired, 62 to 70 years old, half of them played piano, half of them just sort of using glasses. create a a two-state solution let's let's create a country and you know that includes the west bank and gaza this is what uh, biden and, and um, uh, anthony blinken yesterday were talking about let's 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 create this let's do this yes uh, you know uh, netanyahu is opposed to it 
um, you know, but this is the right thing to do. And I, you know, I, I completely agree. So anyhow, interesting. We'll see how this all plays out. Let's pick up some of your calls here. David in Chicago. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Hey, just want to give a big shout out. Happy Blue Wave 2023. There you go. And something here I wanted to point out uh, that the media is not talking another big victory on our side. Uh, we gained a seat in the House. If Rhode Island won a special election, uh, I believe his name is uh, Gabe Ammo, mm-hmm. first black candidate ever from Rhode Island to get a seat in Congress. So it's historic. And I think pretty big, but it got overshadowed by all our other massive victories. So anyways, right. wanted to put that out there So that, it's that's, not being shown anywhere. Yeah, that, that <laughs> so. takes the Republican majority in the House down to what, six, seven? I think, no, I think four now, four? I believe. Whoa. Okay. I, I think that... I, I think it was five, and I think this takes it to four. Okay, Unless, I have. I, I, I confess, I've not been following fully. carefully. Yeah, um, I know. That, right, I'm uh, not 100 percent on that, but I, I think that's it. Yeah. But the, anyways, just wanted to put that out there and some more good news. You know, keep it rolling, keep okay. it going, and right. uh, keep the Joe momentum going for 2024. There you go, David. Thank you. Brilliant, uh, Monica in uh, Chirino, Texas. Hey, Monica, what's up? Hey, I wanted to thank you for telling us about the Judiciary Committee mm-hmm. and that eight, eight amendments were attached to the paperwork by Republicans to get Harold Crow and Leonard Leo in for yeah. a discussion. The reason I'm calling you, other than to thank you for that, is because every time, unfortunately, Cornyn and Cruz represent me here in Texas. Right. And they're and both on the committee. I yeah. Every time I call their office, I get the message center. Mm-hmm. And I leave my phone number, the county and city I live in, so that they know that I'm being represented by them. They never call back. Of course. Yeah. Now, does anybody else go through that other than myself? This is typical with Republican representation. They don't come back to the state or the city, and they don't do town halls, and they don't take feedback from their from their constituents like you monica because they're they're taking all their money from right-wing billionaires and big corporations and that's who they serve that's who they're there in congress to serve monica thank you and keep keep making those calls good on you we'll be right back you're listening to the tom hartman program call 202-808-9925 oh what's on your mind i'll pick up your calls on the other side of this break Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016, one of my favorites. In her writings, which have, this is from page 62, by the way, the, a middle class primer, primer is the chapter title. In her writings, which have become foundational for libertarian theology, author Ayn Rand suggested that the only purpose of government should be to present, prevent uh, oppression by force. What she neglected to consider was all the force inherent in nature. If you're hungry, there is the force of biology. If you're homeless, you confront the force of wind, storms, ice, and rain. If you're sick, you confront the ravages and force of disease. These were the forces that provoked the first governments. 
the first communities, the first clans and tribes, the first nation states. It's easy for libertarian elitists, such as multimillionaire t t TV talking heads or college kids reading Atlas Shrugged, to talk about how there should be no government beyond police, the army, and courts. They all have enough resources that they don't need to deal with the forces of raw nature. And that explains why billionaires would bankroll libertarian-leaning think tanks that will, when the crash comes with its full force, tell us it was caused by big government. However, in the real world, humans must confront both nature and other humans, which is why we create governments and why we create economies. But it wasn't until 1776, when Thomas Jefferson placed John Locke's right to life, liberty, and property, or replaced it, with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that the idea of a large class of working people have the ability to pursue happiness, the middle class. It wasn't until 1776 that that was even seriously considered as a cornerstone obligation to government. This is also the first time in history that the word happiness had ever appeared in any nation's formative documents, as Jefferson wrote in 1817 to Dr. John Manners. Quote, the evidence of this natural right, like that to our right of life, liberty, the use of our faculties, the pursuit of happiness is not left to the feeble and sophisticated investigations of reason, but is impressed on the sense of every man. As Jefferson realized, with no government interference by setting the rules of the game of business and fair taxation, there could be no broad middle class, maybe a sliver of small business and artisans, but the vast majority of us would be the working poor under the yoke of elites. The economic royalists know this, which gets to the root of why they set out to destroy government's involvement in the economy. After all, in a middle class economy, they may have to give up some of their power and some of the higher end of their wealth may even be redistributed, horrors of horrors, uh, for schools, parks, libraries, and other things that support a healthy middle class society but are not needed by the rich who live in a parallel but separate world from the rest of us. As Jefferson laid out in his 1816 letter to Samuel Kirchhoff, a totally free market where corporations reign supreme, just like the oppressive governments of old, could transform America, quote, until the bulk of the society is reduced to be mere auto automatons of misery, to have no sensibilities left for, but for sinning and suffering. Then begins, indeed, the bella omnium in omnia, which some philosophers observing to be so general in this world have mistaken it for the natural instead of the abusive state of man. Although this may come as a sudden realization to many, we've really known it all our lives. In fact, in the 6,000-year history of the civilized world, a middle class emerging in any nation has been such a rarity as to be largely historically invisible. The United States has had two great periods of what we today call a middle class. The first was from the 1700s to the mid-1800s, and was fueled by virtually free land for settlers, stolen from the Indians, and free labor, slavery in the South and indentured immigrants in the North. The result was, as de Tocqueville pointed out, the most well-educated, politically active, middle-class, non-aristocrats in the world. The second period didn't take hold until after World War II, during my dad's lifetime. Unlike the first, which was fueled by free land and slaves, the second had to be carefully constructed with specific and what some might define as socialist policies put in place during the New Deal, which asserted more democratic control over the economy and workplace in order to keep the economic royalists in check. To both stimulate and ba balance the domestic economy, FDR reinstituted progressive taxation, which gave workers more to spend and gave the rich an incentive to pay their workers better to maintain a stable workplace if they took the money themselves, it would just mostly go to taxes, thus stimulating demand for more goods and services. Progressive taxation has a long history. 
As Jefferson said in a 1785 letter to James Madison, quote, another means of silently lessening the inequality of property is to exempt from taxation all below a certain point and to tax the higher portions of property in geometrical progression as they rise. FDR eventually hiked the top income tax rate paid by the super rich in America to 90%. This had a twofold effect. First, it held income inequality in check and issued, ushered in an era of equal income and a growth among all classes. Unlike the Gilded Age, when the economy grew at a blistering pace but the gains were afforded only to the robber barons, the period between 1947 and 1980 saw unparalleled equitable growth. During these 30-plus years, the poorest fifth in America saw a 116% increase in their incomes. The middle fifth, 111% increase. Top 5% only saw an 85% increase. All income classes shared in the prosperity of the times when the top marginal income tax rate was above 70%. The second effect of a high income tax rate was to bring stability to the economy. And then it goes through the whole explanation of how that worked. The book is The Crash of 2016. From international trade policy to immigration policy to housing, we've got all kinds of topics. The wars between Republicans and Democrats, the Republican efforts to induce fascism in the United States. A great selection of opinions will be found over at HartmanReport.com. Well, there was another Republican uh, bill to fund the government this morning. And they're trying to figure out how to keep the government open, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, they had to pull it because Republicans kept adding amendments to it. One of them was to outlaw birth control pills. These guys just, they, they you know, give them an inch, they'll take a mile. I mean, they, they just never stop. And then on Sunday when uh, Mike Johnson, uh, MAGA Mike, was interviewed about this on Fox News, and she asked him, uh, you know, the, the, the woman who was interviewing him, uh, Shannon Bream, on Fox News, she, she said, you know, you co-sponsored a bill to make birth control illegal. And he was like, oh, I don't remember that. Huh. Yeah, he did, just like recently. And he's a big, a big supporter of it, apparently. Uh, because those birth control pills are actually causing abortions, don't you know? And IUDs, yes, indeed, it's all about abortion. These guys are nuts. All right, so what's on your mind today? Let's pick up your calls here. Mark in Long Beach, California. Hey, Mike, uh, Mike, or excuse me, Mark. Mark, what's on your mind today? Yes. Good morning, Tom. Can you hear me okay? Just fine. I finally learned something from you uh, that I've been wanting to learn from, for a long time. And I just want to tell you if I understood correctly. I've heard you mention on the air a number of times about lifting the cap. So I went on Google and it says in 2024, once 168600 has been earned, the employee no longer has to pay Social Security taxes deducted from their paycheck. Neither does so, the employer. Do I, Huh? Neither does the employer. It's 50-50. Right. So does that mean if a person made 175000 and another person made 750000 naturally the one who made 750000 is going to have more federal and state taxes taken out, but the Social Security tax will be the same. Did, did I understand it right? That's correct. That's correct. I, I, I remember when I first learned about this, it was in the 1970s. And uh, Terry O'Connor and I were uh, owned this company, the Woodley Herber Company, and we were making good money. 
and my dad was our bookkeeper. And uh, we sat down with him to do uh, our, our taxes and whatnot. And uh, he was like, oh, you made over, and back then it was like 32,000, 33,000, something like that, which would be, you know, in today's dollars, probably 100, 150,000. And um, he said, you made over $30,000 a year this year, so you're no longer having to pay Social Security taxes. And I was like, huh? And I, I've always been shocked by that, you know, that, that, that we have a system that says if you're rich, you don't have to pay as much in Social Security taxes as a percentage of your income as if you're poor. If, if I was working at a hamburger stand and I was making $6,000 a year, 100% of my income would be taxed for Social Security, 100% of it. But if I was making a million dollars a year, only about 16% uh, of my income would be taxed for Social Security purposes. That's wrong. Tom, can you, Tom, can you explain to me briefly uh, why would uh, a Democrat or a Republican be against lifting the cap? Republicans are against lifting the cap because they call it a tax increase. And, uh, you know, they're just unwilling to, to raise taxes on rich people, period, full stop, because the Republican Party has basically one purpose in America, and that's to serve the interests of the very rich, the morbidly rich. Uh, Democrats oh. have been calling to raise the cap forever. Uh, this has been, you know, repeated, uh, going back to the Johnson administration, they, they've just never had the votes to do it. Or maybe they've just never had the cojones to do it, I don't know. But, you know, yeah. that, that, that cap was originally put in there back in 1935 when, when Franklin Roosevelt rolled out Social Security as a way to get the conservative votes. I mean, that was, that was the price he had to pay. Just like in 1967 when Lyndon Johnson rolled out Medicare, um, the 20% the hole in Medicare um, uh, was to satisfy the conservatives in the South. Now, they didn't want black right. people who, you know, who might not be able to afford the 20% to be able to get any health care at all. And they thought that 20% um, would be a barrier to them. Um, so, yeah. you know, you, you go back to the uh, origin stories, and it usually has to do with either racism or, or you know, uh, supporting the interests of the morbidly rich. Yes. Uh, Tom, one quick point about the debate last night. Only Chris Christie and Nikki Haley was firm in their support for aid to Ukraine. I agree. The other three wavered, hem and hawed. Uh, does that mean they're uh, Putin Republicans? Yeah, uh, uh, the other three, absolutely. I call. I, I would say that they're members of the Putin caucus. Absolutely. Especially oh, Ramaswamy. Thank you I mean, so much. He was, Ramaswamy oh. was literally echoing Putin's propaganda. He was, he was lying through his teeth and echoing Russian propaganda about, oh, Zelensky's a Nazi and, you know, these, these are Russian-speaking territories. There's some truth to that, but not a whole lot of it. Um, and I, it was just, it was bizarre. It was bizarre. Mark, it, thank you for the it call. It really was. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Good talking to you. Kelly in uh, Palmdale, California. Hey, Kelly, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom, and thank you for the opportunity. Long time, first time. Thank you. Um, the, uh, the point that I wanted to make is, you know, we're sitting here strategizing how Biden needs to approach the campaigning for 2024. And it's really boils down to two, one basic thing. Do we want democracy or autocracy? Yeah. And I really think that's where they need to focus their, our energy, uh, to the American people right now, as opposed to trying to 
prop Biden up. He's such a humble person, mm-hmm. and he's gotten so much done in this this period of time that he's been in the president. the The Republican side does it, it has no effect on them, and I, I'm even starting to see it come from uh, from Democrats now, where especially in the young generation. Are, are starting to uh, to question his abilities, and it, that's really the bottom line of this whole yeah. thing: is do we want democracy or an autocracy? I agree. I agree. That that really is the bottom line. That is the debate. That is you know uh, that that is the issue. If Donald Trump is elected president, or frankly any Republican who goes along with Project Twenty Twenty Five. It is the end of American democracy as we know it, and it's the end of much of America as we know it. We will become a very, very different nation very, very rapidly, and and it will not be a, a pretty thing. And uh, I, this this is a this is an epic battle for the future and survival of democracy, not just in America, but because we play such a large role as kind of the uh, the paragon of democracy all around the world. Uh, frankly, it's a, a battle for the future of democracy around the world. Kelly, thank you. Uh, well said. Rachel in Needham, Massachusetts. Hey, Rachel, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Uh, good to hear you. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. And I want to say you have such a nice laugh. It's nice to hear that because well, it allows people's you, hearts to open up. Uh, what I'd like to say is that the way Trump is speaking in his rants and rallies or whatever, I believe, and I'm pretty sure you do too, is it's all fascist speak. Yeah. And not that I understand how to decipher it, but I can notice it, that he's he's telling us in his, you know, prophecy ways of what he is expecting to do so that after he does it, he can say, see, I told you it was going to happen. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, and then his face, it looks like you were talking about his health and everything and Biden's health. The way he looks in his face, I've really been focusing on. Mm-hmm. And it looks like he eats uh, Mickey D's every single day. I the bloatedness, the open pores, the big pores. Yeah. I mean, he looks pale, he looks sickly. Yeah. And so you're right on that. Yeah, it looks he, like he's gained about 50 pounds since he left the White House. I mean, he's just. Oh, really? The, the, yeah, yeah. You see pictures of him on his golf cart and. Um, you know, it's like there's a, a, a couple of basketballs stuffed in there. Uh, it's just, it's oh, really, wow. it, it's, uh, I, 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 well, you know, I, I realize that's not, you know, qualification or disqualification, but if we're going to talk about Joe Biden's age, we need to be talking about Donald Trump's obesity and the fact that he lies about it. Um, you know, right on. Yeah. High five. Right yeah. there with you. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take that on and move it forward in my life. So there thank you go. You so thank much thank you, Rachel. By the way, I'm, I'm seeing the, uh, the Chiron on MSNBC. Joe Manchin is not going to run for re-election. That's interesting. That's going to open up the West Virginia race wide open. It's going to be fascinating. Dennis in Sarasota, Florida. Hey, Dennis, thanks for listening to WMNF. What's up? Dennis? Hey, hey, Tom. Yeah, it's me. Yeah, you're um, your, fr- your friendly neighborhood warrior lawyer in Sarasota. Uh, on the Mike Johnson religious test, I haven't heard you mention Article 6 of the Constitution, so I thought I'd refresh your memory on that and point out that the Constitution specifically prohibits religious tests or oaths for office 
either to the federal office holders or state office holders. That's right. So I, had, I, I pointed that out when I was ranting about it the other day. Um, what Johnson is proposing is not that there should be a federal law that is a religious test, but rather that the political parties should impose a religious test before they will allow somebody to rise up through their primary ranks, or at least the Republican Party should. And that would not violate uh, the Constitution's Article 6. Well, perhaps not by virtue of the strict letter of the uh, Constitution. It would certainly violate the, the, the spirit of it. Yeah, well, it's, it's about as un-American as you can get. I mean, remembering I the religious wars in Europe, the religious strife we had during the colonial period, particularly up there in the Northeast. Yep. Uh, you know, the burning the witches, etc. Remember, remember the 5th so, of November. Uh, yeah, all that stuff. So, I mean... Please, every chance you get, beat Mike Johnson over the head with the Bible yeah. <laughs> and with the Constitution. Yeah, I'll beat him over the head Christian, with the Constitution. He's trying to America. beat us over the head with the Bible, <laughs> but I, I get it. Yeah, well, you, you beat him harder. Okay, harder, you got harder. it, Dennis. Thank, thank you. Oh, my. I still want to know why his wife didn't show up in D.C. for his swearing in. Uh, there's something really weird going on in that movie. The following is a program previously broadcast on X-Ray. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's Talk Media for the Sane. I'm going back with your calls in just a minute. you may think my fate is in vain, he'll shine low each other Thank you, Lynn. Um, I, I, yeah, I was told by your person that answers that this is kind of off topic. But um, a long time ago, I think it was before Merrick Garland was even sworn in, you had a woman on your show that kind of went through the steps of why she didn't think Merrick Garland would ever go after Donald Trump. And do you remember, I think her name was Sarah something? I don't recall. I'm sorry. 
You don't. Okay. <laughs> well, I was trying to find like her because I think back at the, back about that so often whenever I hear somebody saying, you know, they don't think Mayor Garland did, you know, did this or did that or was quick enough. And she was so right on whatever she oh, was. Oh, he was gathering was information. I mean, you know, he, he uh, they, they snatched the, the phones from, uh, what was it, Mark Meadows? They, they, they got a bunch of information from, I mean, it, it was clear, they were clearly doing something. But right. it, it still, she, it was way too slow for me, frankly. Yeah, and she really explained in detail why she didn't think, you know, he would do this. And I, right. I can't remember all the reasons she gave, but I still think back about that, thinking she was so right on about that. Yeah. Um, because I, you know, I think a lot of people don't think he's done nearly enough or you know, gone fast enough or hard yeah. enough or something. Well, but, he's done a great job okay. going after the January 6th people. Uh, you know, and those that was those were clear crimes, and and I don't think he had to right. be shamed into that. But those people would not right. have been there were it not for, uh, you know, Donald Trump, and and of course he brought in Jack Smith to go after Donald Trump. But it wasn't just Donald Trump. Mo Brooks was up there on the stage. He's still in Congress. He's, right. He's suffering no consequence. Andrew Clyde was you know, part of this thing. He was uh, giving people, or no, Barry Loudermilk was giving people tours of the Capitol, and they were taking pictures of exits right. and security stuff. I mean, none of these guys yeah. have been held to account. And I know, it just, yeah, it's astonishing. That's the frustration I think most people have. They're fine with what happened with the people that were actually there, but the people in Congress, which Trump himself said, leave it to my friends in Congress, you know. Right. Leave it to the Republicans they, in they Congress have, was what he said. Yes. Yeah, they've faced no consequences. So, yep. okay. Thanks a lot, Lynn. Well, thank you. Great show. Thank you very much. Good talking to you. It's 10 minutes before the hour. I'll be back with more of your calls in just a second. Actually, we'll be right back. Stay tuned. support progressive radio if you're listening to us on a commercial station call their advertisers and let them know you're listening if you're listening to us on pacifica or one of our many nonprofit stations please support them when they do their fundraising drives thanks for supporting progressive talk radio and tag your it calls here john in sebring florida hey john what's on your mind today oh i'm it okay go for it well uh the I, I think the tipping point has been reached. You, uh, I don't know if you got the answer, but a few days ago you said that the temperature has gone up dramatically and nobody knows why. Yep. You know, Al Gore put it in his... We've passed multiple tipping points. I don't think that we've passed the really deadly ones, but I think we've passed ones that are the precursors to the really deadly ones. We're, we're not seeing, for example, the mobilization of methane clathrates in the ocean, but uh, which would be, you know, is what killed most life on Earth in, in the Permian mass extinction. Um, that apparently okay. takes about a four degree in, increase in temperature. But now you got Jim Hansen coming out saying we could be looking as much as nine degrees of warming. As a result of Joe Biden yeah. should declare a climate emergency. I agree. I, I completely and start agree. building nuclear reactors 
and windmills and solar panels. Yeah, I, I disagree with you on the nuclear because it, it takes so much carbon to mine uranium, to, to all the concrete that goes into these buildings, the, the steel. Basically, you have to run a nuclear power plant for about 16 years before you get the first uh, electron that is carbon free. Um, but uh, okay, the, they've got these newfangled ones that are cooled not by water but by lead. Yeah, so I've, they can't ever melt down. Yeah, I've, I've and seen we've that. Got tons but and tons of uranium. But we still have mined already. We we still have no way of disposing of it. But you know that we're splitting hairs here, John. I, I agree with you on the climate crisis and and think that's that's where we really need to be focusing our attention. I'm with you. Thank you, uh, Lynn in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Hey, Lynn, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. It, it was a great day for Virginia, wasn't it? It was, yeah. You, it, it, it looks like it, it squashed uh, Glenn Youngkin's presidential ambitions. Well, there's still a lot of work to do, but just something I want you and all our speak, all our listeners, well, your listeners to do realize, to be free is to vote, is to be equal, because the only time we are equal to each other as human beings is when we vote. I sure wish turnout would have been higher, but we got great turnout for an off-year election. Yeah, yeah, yep. Okay. Other okay. than that, I mean, it was a it was a great day in Virginia. Um, you know, we were able to flip everything. I rode my motorcycle around to a whole bunch of precincts and gave out candy and told people the sweet taste of success. They didn't believe me, but I knew it was coming. I love it. I oh, love it was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful day. It's yeah. a beautiful day today. 75, sunny. Yeah, you know, climate change. Oh, well, yeah. we don't need to go there at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, we'll, me, we'll, we'll, we'll take the good days and we'll blame the bad ones on the climate change. Lynn, thanks. Thanks for that. And, and, and good on you for, you know, helping encourage good Virginians to, to vote the right way. Thank you. John in Seattle. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Um, I was surprised at the extent at which the populist agenda wants to or is planning to change uh, the administrative bureaucracy uh, and to, Trump had signed an executive order shortly before he left office establishing a Schedule F which would dramatically uh, change the civil service to allow much more political appointees to be uh, put into the bureaucracy. Correct. It would essentially reverse the reforms of 1886 um, when the when the civil service was depoliticized uh, during the Grover Cleveland administration, and uh, you know got basically protection from political uh, influence, and it would turn um, at least the senior levels of the civil service back into corrupt toadies for the existing power structure and the and the president yeah i had always just assumed that the bureaucracy all the different uh, uh, forms of government were just part of the government and not subject to the president being able to uh yeah, there's nothing that, that says that in the constitution that's that's a, a combination of law and tradition and uh, you're absolutely right. Trump tried to blow it up. Uh, Biden reversed that executive order. But that executive order is part of, uh, my, if my understanding is correct, is part of uh, Project 2025, this new, new plan for the next Republican president. Amazing. John, thank you for the call. Bruce in Chicago. Hey, Bruce, I have a little less than a minute. You got a quick one? Yes. 
Uh, I'm just curious to know if uh, Ivanka Trump had talked to uh, Anthony uh, Kennedy's son. He was a justice on the Supreme Court. I would love to know the answer to that. Uh, I'm sure that... uh, He signed off on the loan. Uh, He sure did. But uh, I'm just curious as to uh, his phone records and how many times Ivanka had talked to him because uh, she can't recall, but I'm sure he can. I want to know if Jeffrey Epstein was talking to Jeffrey uh, Kennedy, excuse me, to to Justin Kennedy. You know, Epstein Epstein got like a couple hundred million dollars worth of loans around that same time period from Deutsche Bank. And I'm wondering if, and and, uh, Justin Kennedy was going with Trump to uh, nightclubs and stuff. And I'm wondering if if Epstein was going along with them and if uh, the the Deutsche Bank was giving these loans because they were being blackmailed, basically. And that's why the two other loan officers who signed off on these things both committed suicide. Uh, You know, it, it just stinks to high heaven to me. Bruce, thank you for the call. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Thanks for being with us today. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. We'll catch up with you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. America's economic and political inequality has led workaday Americans to exclaim, the system is broken, let's fix it. But there's another version of this protest that I'm hearing more frequently these days. The system is fixed, let's break it. That certainly applies. This is Ross Beach, host of Alive with Pleasure with this week's edition of the X-Ray FM Concert Calendar, a highly abridged list highlighting some of the many live music shows in the Portland area for the weekend starting on this Friday, November the 10th. Friday night brings us Joan Osborne at the Aladdin Theater, Ms. Lauren Hill at the Moda Center, Beach Fossils at the Roseland, Genesis Owusu at the Star Theater, and Stephanie Schneiderman at the Laurel Thirst. Then on Saturday, Dizzy comes to Polaris Hall, a giant dog will be at Dante's, Aiden Bissett will be at Holocene, Scott Yoder plays The Fixin' Two, Actors will be at the Coffin Club, and Margaret Glaspie and Cat Clyde come to Mississippi Studios. Then on Sunday night, local band The Prairie Benders has a CD release show at the Kenton Club, Tally's plays the show bar, ZZ Ward will be at Revolution Hall, and Fever Ray comes to the Roseland Theater. On Monday, Liz Fair will be at Revolution Hall, and St. Paul and the Broken Bones come to the Crystal Ballroom. Then on Tuesday, the Linda Lindas will be at Revolution Hall, Noah Gunderson comes to the Lab Theater, and Joy Oladokun comes to the Crystal Ballroom. On Wednesday, we'll have Creature Party at Holocene. No Name will be at the Roseland Theater, and the new pornographers come to Revolution Hall. Then Thursday night, local band Lawrence Elk has a release show at the Fixin' 2. Simmel will be at Revolution Hall. Kuinka comes to the Get Down, and Wynn plays at the Wonder Ballroom. If you're just learning the name of some of these artists like I did this week, I've got good news. I'll be spinning many of them on my